Blog Talk Radio. This is The Long Road to Ruin. I am your host, the mandator reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Radelich. We are celebrating all things Wizards and Wonderful this month. Uh, the new Harry Potter uh, movie comes, well, it's not really Harry Potter now, is it? But it's in the Harry Potter universe. I actually need to ask somebody about that, and I will in a moment. Uh, but Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them comes out this week. And so, as we've been doing for the last two to celebrate these things, we are talking about the eight Harry Potter movies. We are, this is part three or four. Uh, if you go back in the archives, the past two weeks, we've looked at the uh, first four movies, uh, which was very, which was batting 500 for me. Uh, if you've listened to those shows, you know, uh, really like two of them, two of them, meh. Um, but I have to say, the two that we're going to talk about tonight, Order of the Phoenix and uh, Half-Blood Prince, were awesome. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Can't wait to watch the Deathly Hollows now. I actually stopped myself because we're not going to be talking about them for another two weeks. So I said, ah, I, I've even I've seen these movies, but I don't care. I want to watch them now. I have manic tendencies. Anyway, um, so tonight, though, we are uh, going to stick with Order of the Phoenix and the Half-Blood Prince. I am, of course, joined by my co-host, Mr. Sean Comer. How do you do, sir? Welcome to the fandom, Mark. Hi, everybody. I'm Sean. You're not. And you have no idea how close I came to doing this podcast on a treadmill tonight. <laughs> Very good, sir. I uh, want to bring back our special guest and Harry Potter expert, Alexis Haina. Uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> Those of you who have just tuned in for the first time, uh, Mark has a tendency to mispronounce either my first name or my last name to the point that I've officially declared it is not an official podcast until I hear my name pronounced incorrectly. He seems to think that you're Amazon's proprietary virtual assistant. <laughs> Walker, Walker. Miss <laughs> Haina. Yes. I, I have a question. Please, go ahead. I I have a question. This came up on my Facebook page today. And um, and it uh, it was yesterday or today. I don't remember which day it was. But one of my old running pals, uh, when I posted that uh, fantastic piece and where to find them, debuted on Rotten Tomatoes with a 100% uh, score. Uh, critic score. I don't know where it is now, but I can't imagine it's dropped considerably since then. So it's, I would imagine it's pretty high. 
And I think by the time we get to the end of the weekend, um, it will settle that certified fresh. That would be my guess. Uh, so I posted that on Facebook, and uh, the response I got from somebody was, um, is this or is this not a Harry Potter movie? Uh, and I won't get into the sort of the details of how that debate arose, but I said, well, you know, if you, if you think about universes and how they are titled, this was my contention, I said, it's a Harry Potter movie in the sense that it exists in the Harry Potter universe. Does, does this universe actually go by a different name? Because if that's the case, then I'm actually wrong. But that's what I thought it was. I thought this was the Harry Potter universe. Uh, you are correct. It is the Harry Potter universe. Uh, this starts out in the 1920s, obviously uh, more than 60 years before Harry Potter is even born. There are a lot of connecting factors. It was recently announced, so you may have heard Johnny Depp has been cast, but he has been cast as Gellert Grindwald. Fans of the book will recognize him. He is the famous dark wizard that Albus Dumbledore had his infamous duel with eons ago. Uh, they have announced they are casting for a young Albus Dumbledore as well. Uh, Keen eyes have noticed in the backgrounds of shots from the movie and the posters, we have seen various elements that will pop up again in the Harry Potter world. My most favorite being the, I have no idea what his character's name is, uh, Colin Farrell is in this movie. Uh, on his character poster, there hangs the Deathly Hallows symbol. We want to know, how is that going to tie into his character? So, yes, you are correct. Okay, because I didn't think they were calling it the Wizarding World universe or anything like that. I mean, the the, the contention that, that I was making to her is like, well, when you think Lord of the Rings, it's the Tolkien universe or the Star Wars universe or the Marvel universe. And so if you're calling it the Harry Potter universe, then it's a Harry Potter film, even if he's not actually in the movie and it's several years before he was even born. And that is a good point. He's not that in the movie. Yeah, he's not in the movie, but they have not officially given a name to it. It's not like, you're right, like the Tolkien universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There really isn't a name like the Rowling universe. I don't even know if that works. Uh, If there is, someone let us know, because I honestly have not heard if this is just the Wizarding World or not. There's got to be another name for this. I wish we could call it the Muggleverse, just because I I like that name. But then it would really... I like that, too. (laughs) <laughs> it would be kind of against the whole, you know, this is the magic world, but named it after the non-magic users. Muggleverse. All right. Um, it also doesn't work because they established that muggle is a uh, British term. This movie takes place primarily in America, and they say that they call the non-magic users the no-match. So muggle, <laughs> w- yeah, muggle really doesn't work. All right. Um, speaking of muggles, Sean, you got anything you want to add to this lovely conversation? Even in this world, our slang sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well said. All right, before we jump into Order of the Phoenix, and it, this is going to be one of those weird podcasts where I love, where you know, like I said, I love the movies. I really don't have a lot of criticism. I tried. There's not much to say in terms of uh, things that didn't work, in my opinion. But sometimes those podcasts, you know. You don't. You've never heard of our Metal Metal Hammer of Doom podcast, but the infamous Children of Bodom uh, review podcast, where basically Cooper and I, after every track, went, "Yeah, it's good too." Next, <laughs> it's nothing to say, <laughs> <laughs> or <laughs> or it could go the other way. 
Um, but before we get into that, I thought it would be fun. Uh, again, we're, you know, with four of these, I'm trying to do some different things, uh, do some fun things at the show. So I got a list here because, you know, why not rip off the casual heroes? We have a list of Harry Potter movies ranked worst to best. Uh, this was published yesterday on filmoria.co.uk. So we're going to go from the worst to the best here, starting with number eight. Uh, Sean, would you like to take a, take a guess? as to what the worst movie this person uh, thought uh, thought was? So, like I said, so I understand this. Eight is the worst movie, right? Uh, I'm going to guess... My first guess is going to be Chamber of Secrets, and failing that, I'm going to guess that it's either Goblet of Fire or Sorcerer's Stone. Alexis? Uh, I don't think Goblet of Fire would possibly be a contender for worse, but I have to agree. It's either Chamber of Secrets or Sorcerer's Stone. Well, for those of you that said Chamber of Secrets, you are correct. And I feel Yay. vindicated. Yay! <laughs> I absolutely hated that movie. Um, yes, number eight, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, the author's name here is Sarah Buttery, B-U-D-D-E-R-Y, not two T's, you know, in the product you put on biscuits. Um, despite arguably being the closest in terms of book to film adaptation, it suffers greatly from the difficult second album syndrome. The first film had to deal out heavy amounts of exposition in order to establish this world, which is fairly essential for the first movie in a series, even when there is the familiar book source material behind it. However, where the exposition was somewhat necessary in the Philosopher's Stone, the Chamber of Secrets, it feels like it drags the film down and laden with unnecessary exposition and set up which it could really do without by this point. It's totally all over the place as well uh, and has an over-reliance on slapstick comedy, which lessens some of the more serious events which occur later. Um, there's more on that, but that's about the gist of it. Any thoughts here? John, you want to go I, first or should I? Oh, I mean, as I was saying literally just seconds before we came on the air, Saying that it's the weakest of the Harry Potter movies, which it is, it would be akin to my personal opinion that uh, Iron Man 3 is probably the weakest of the Marvel movies in that even then it speaks volumes that it's still pretty solid. I mean, it's, it's still watchable. And it's not like we're talking... like. Dark Crystal levels of bad or anything, or or even you know, in terms of franchises, Star Wars prequel levels of suckitude. But no, no, I, I would agree with pretty much everything stated. Everything stated there. Keep knocking the Dark Crystal. I don't know what you're talking about, buddy. It's one of the greatest films <laughs> ever captured on uh, captured on celluloid. It's it's a master marvel of puppeteering. I'm not getting into that. Dark Crystal gave me nightmares when I was a kid. Oh, goodness. Do you still hear yell out Skeksis in the dark? You will never find out what I yell out in the dark, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I could make Family Feud-style guesses, but... (laughs) All right. Mark. (laughs) Number seven. I was going to say, just continuing what Sean said, We again, I brought this up right before the podcast. 
that I did enjoy Chamber of Secrets, but the fact is that when you look back on it, you realize it is a severe puzzle placement movie. So many parts of it do become incredibly important in further books, and they have a lot that they got to hammer out. So you look back on it with more fondness, I think, when you think about that, and when you reread it, you go, oh, there's that, and oh, that becomes important later. But has, standing on its own, it is the weakest. Mm-hmm. I'll let you keep going here. You want to take a guess at number seven? Oh, I would almost guarantee it's got to be um, – it's almost got to be uh, Sorcerer's Stone. I'm well, agreeing on that one. I agree. They're both wrong. <laughs> no. Oh, really? According to really? this person, the second worst movie of the franchise is – and I don't know how she came to this conclusion. I guess we'll find out in a moment. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Oh, well, Miss Butter Biscuits, may your next shit be a hedgehog. <laughs> I want to hear the explanation for this. Please, start with the reading. The way most of the film plays out, you wouldn't think that a major character death was going to occur at the end. And the entire course of the series would reach a drastic turning point from then onwards. It all feels a little middle of the series. Rather than driving us purposely towards the dramatic conclusion and the focus is weirdly shown on Professor Slughorn Slug Club, it is a thing, whoever Ginny Weasley is dating this week, and a really petty squabble between Ron and Harry. It picks up towards the end when the quest for the Deathly Hollows begins, and Dumbledore's shocking death is every bit as dramatic and devastating as it was in the book. The Half-Blood Prince is also rather sh- rather shamefully glosses over a pretty salient point given the title, that being the identity of the Half-Blood Prince, that being the identity of the Half-Blood Prince, it is revealed to be Snape, spoilers, which was fairly obvious, but is dealt with so offhand that you'd be forgiven for thinking it wasn't a super important thing, especially considering the prince in question, the prince in question's character arc over the next two films. No, Harry Potter, Potter film is bad per se, but this, is easy, this easily slots into the bottom half of the movies in terms of quality. I think this person's on drugs, but I'll, I'll defer to you first, folks. Uh, go ahead, Alexis. Okay, there oh, are some no, parts that we're going to get into. Sorry, there was some weird feedback there. Uh, there is some parts about that she talks about we will get into later when we discuss Half-Blood Prince. I don't want to start rambling on now and get us off topic. Uh, for the record, the whole thing about uh, Harry and Ron's uh, fighting, it's like, uh, okay, first of all, honey, that's Ron and Hermione who fight in this one. Secondly, I think you're thinking of Goblet of Fire. Because that's, that's the one where Harry and Ron fight like crazy. That's the one where their friendship's put to the test. Right. Um, I also, I mean, like, I get a little bit where she's coming from, where you you, um, you have this reveal at the end. Which kind of feels, which on, which on the one hand kind of feels like it came out of nowhere, but again, it was kind of like what I said about Goblet of Fire, where it's like, oh, once the reveal happens, it makes the whole prior part of the movie and what built up to that reveal become that much more clear. And so, and so, you ha- I think you have to be paying attention. You have to be fair, and then you realize that's a great reveal, 
Um, and it really does, you know, it really, it really does set up the whole uh, movie for you. Uh, if you're not paying attention, yeah, I guess it comes, I guess it does come out of left field. Um, but the rest of this, I think she's on drugs. The, the whole Professor Slughorn scenes were critical to the plot. But again, this, exactly. is something that Winfrey, this is something that Winfrey and I talk about. It's like, God forbid the movie should slow down so the exposition can play out or you learn details about a character. But cry it out loud. Sean? Well, Lady Butterbeer Belly, it's nice to know that you hate the half that you hate the Half Blood Prince for being everything that the movie needed to, needed it to be. Do go sit on a pike. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll give you guys this one since you've nominated it at least twice now. The number six worst. Sorry, the number three most worst Harry Potter movie on this list. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, it's all rather twee. <laughs> it's all rather twee to look back on now. The acting is very straight out of stage school. Aw, leave those kids alone. And the plot is not just by the numbers, but one which is served to you on a big silver platter with someone loudly stating the incredibly obvious things that are being presented to you simultaneously. It serves as a very interesting reference point for where it all began, and it's particularly interesting to look back on now, especially knowing how the three young leads develop into pretty fine actors as the film progresses. There's absolutely not a bad film, but one which, compared to what follows, doesn't quite stack up. It's a film which is best enjoyed with a childlike wonder and a strong sense of looking back on old friends in more carefree days. The first sights of the Wizarding World, as seen through the eyes of young Harry, are still just as magical now as they were then. Embrace the twee. This is still a film to watch fondly and enjoy. Sean? Oh, well, Miss Baba Ganoush Buggery, did you have fun once and just find yourself traumatized by it ever afterward? Can we get a running tally of all the names you're calling her? <laughs> by all means, if you want to. Just, okay, well, once more. I'm starting to get the impression this was just written by somebody who just didn't like the Harry Potter series in general because... One of the things you have to accept about every, both every book and every movie is that they are what they need to be. I mean, plain and, I mean, plain and simple. It was a faithful adaptation of the book. And, yeah, no shit, Sherlock, Emma Watson, Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grint, Tom Felton at all were not exactly the more accomplished performers that they are today. For most, I believe, if not almost all of the child actors in the movie, this was their first time on the big screen. So what were you really expecting? I, I, I mean, it's it's one thing to load up, well, since we always make the comparison, it's one thing to load up a movie like The Lord of the Rings with talented veteran performers such as Viggo Mortensen and Elijah Wood and Ian McKellen and Christopher Lee and, to a slightly lesser extent, Liv Tyler, um, Jonathan Reese davies etc., etc., and get pretty much what you would expect 
from a stacked cast with their respective resumes. But as you said, cut the kids a break. They were trying to hold their own alongside some of the most venerable dramatic luminaries in the UK. That's no small task. And quite frankly, as we've already established, Emma and Daniel in particular really rose to the occasion pretty damn quickly. Funny you mentioned Lord of the Rings here. Um, you know, whenever I hear somebody complain about uh, a movie like Sorcerer's Stone, you know, it reminds me of a lot of people's uh, reactions to Fellowship of the Rings or even uh, the first Hobbit movie. Um, which are not, a, not as quite the quality of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but they both kind of had the same issue, which is you spend a lot of time setting up the universe. And I remember people who, like, they, I told this story, actually, when we talked about it at the beginning of the year. My friend's uh, now wife, who had no idea what these movies were and did not know it was a trilogy at the time, the uh, Lord of the Rings. So her reaction to the end of the movie was hilarious. So, you, you know, you have the whole breaking of the fellowship the two of them standing up on the mountain, <laughs> looking at the distance, seeing Mordor, knowing the road, you know, the, the road that's yet to come, roll credits, and we're all like, oh, can't wait for the two towers, oh, what an amazing movie, and she turns and looks at her now husband and says, wait, it's over? What the hell happened? Did they ever destroy the ring? And you can just... <laughs> just everyone you know, sort of that, turn and look at her. That, that that actually reminds me of a story that kind of gets passed around uh, my dad's side of the family, particularly my dad and stepmom. Um, and God, I, I forget who one half of this was, but uh, if if either of you have ever seen the movie, A River Runs Through It, um, there, there's a scene there's a scene very early in the movie where um, the the two brothers um, Norman McLean and McLean brother played by Brad Pitt. I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, uh, steal a rowboat and take it on a somewhat ill-fated trip down some Mon- down some uh, Montana rapids, during which the boat gets the boat gets wrecked. This happens, I believe, about a uh, half hour, forty five minutes into the mo- into the movie. And keep in mind, these are the two main characters. And I forget who they were watching it with, but Dad claims that whoever it was actually actually asked, "Are they dead?" Yes, <laughs> they're dead. The movie's only half an hour long. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> um, Mark, Mark I, I need you to reread part of what she said about that. What was that about the twist that? She- or the conclusion she saw coming a mile away. What what was that again? Um, for uh, the Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll just reread this. Um, and the plot is not just by the numbers, but one in which is served to you on a big silver platter with someone loudly stating the incredibly obvious things that are being presented to you simultaneously. It serves as a very interesting reference point for where it all began, and it's particularly interesting to look back now and now, especially knowing how the three young leads developed into fine actors. 
It's absolutely not a bad film, but when compared to what follows, doesn't quite stack up. It's a film which is best enjoyed with a childlike wonder and a strong sense of looking back on old friends, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, because when I heard that, I thought what they said about the Half-Blood Prince and the whole uh, revelation that Snape was the actual writer of the book. And I started thinking, wow, okay, either I'm a complete moron or you're just really smart because I always love these books for their twists and their endings. Like, wow, you actually saw that coming? You thought that was presented on a silver platter? Good for you. I still remember the first time I read Sorcerer's Stone, and when they get to the reveal about who the actual bad guy is, I nearly dropped the book. This was eons yeah, ago, and I still remember going, I still remember first I was like, wait, that, holy crap. You know, uh, uh, up and down the whole way, it was Snape. Exactly. I'll tell you this. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was done. I just said exactly. I'm, I'm good. I'll tell you this, and I said, I said this on the first podcast, and for, you know, for what this one brings up, it bears repeating. My only issue, really, with the, with the Sorcerer's Stone um, was the fact that because there was so much world building going on and because there was so much time spent in character development, look, you have to sacrifice something. If you don't have, a, if you don't have balance in a movie, if you're going to cut the pie in such a way that there are more, um, there's more pieces allocated to these other parts, uh, bigger pieces allocated to these other parts, something else is going to have to shrink. This is not a six-hour movie. You, you, know, you, have, you have a time constraint, so something has to give. And so you have, you know, if you're looking at a, a sort of a line diagram of how a movie uh, develops, you know, rising action, falling action, et cetera, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a diagonal line that just sort of drops at the very end. <laughs> You know, you have all world building, world building, world building, and your and your your um, your zenith or your highest point of the plot is immediately followed by the final by the conclusion, um, which is not a bad thing necessarily. But I think in terms of strict uh, movie structure, it, it it deserves some comment, and if it makes people uncomfortable, you know, I don't I don't blame them. Um, but I'm but I'll but I don't think every movie needs to be structured in the exact same way. Hello, Quentin Tarantino. Uh, so, so I'm so I'm okay with it. But some people may kind of may see that and go, well, that's a that's a deficit of the film. Uh, okay, let's move on to the next one. Uh, what do you think comes next, Sean? I'm going to guess either Goblet of Fire or Prisoner of Azkaban. I'm going with Goblet. You are correct. Goblet of Fire. We all know what I thought of that one. (laughs) Also known as Harry Potter and the Terrible Haircuts. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Where the teenage angst and edginess of our not-so-young-anymore heroes was demonstrated by the fact that both Harry and Ron were going to see the same wizard barber, who quite frankly did a pretty shoddy job with their bonnet. I'll pause for laughter here. <clears throat> There's many things which go in this film's favor, and it's quite nice to have a storyline which revolves around something different to the potions, lessons, and Quidditch games that we've seen so far. It expands the magical world to show that Hogwarts is the only wizard school we should be submitting our applications to, and this adds an interesting layer of history and mythos into the world we've come to explore over the first three movies. It's also the first movie in the series that give us a pretty major character death, which really helps to set up the stakes for the films to come. It falls pretty much dead center in this list because it's really just fine. 
there's a little too much focus on the perils of wizard dating. <laughs> it takes a little of the focus away from the real peril of Harry being set up to win the tournament and go to his death and the small matter of Voldemort returning. But it, is, but it still makes for a pretty enjoyable watch. It also has a truly exceptional cameo appearance from Jarvis Cocker, who fronts some kind of wizard indie rock band, which ups its awesome factor tenfold. Alexis? Well, we did cover Goblet of Fire in our previous podcast. What, what was that they said about Jarvis Cocker? What was that line? He, he fronts some kind of wizard indie rock band. I, I guess at the party that they go to. Um, yeah, the band. You know, this was actually... Yeah, this is actually something that I made note of uh, when I got ready to do the previous podcast, but I didn't get a chance to talk about that in the book they make a big deal about this popular wizarding band called the Weird Sisters um, getting to perform at the Yule Ball. Uh, I guess this would kind of be like, what's a really good band now that doesn't suck? Imagine Dragons, I guess, appearing at your senior prom. I'm hoping that they still are relevant because I don't listen to a lot of pop music. <laughs> I'd have gone with Metallica, and, and, sure. Well, I think these guys are meant to be a little bit more youth-focused, but yes, it, the the band that they got together to play it is basically a combo of various players from Pulp and Radiohead, and I am not ashamed to admit that I purchased the Goblet of Fire soundtrack because the band they put together does perform three songs on it, and I love them. I don't care if one of them is called Dance Like a Hippogriff. I love that song. And now we have opening music for our next podcast. All right. There you go. Yay! <laughs> Sean? Well done, Lady Booberry. You got one right. I mostly can't argue except for the fact that you still seem to dislike everything about these movies that makes them good. But, yeah. All right, we are uh, on to our last four here. Um, I'll give you this one so we can guess the last three. Uh, coming in at number four, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows, part one. When watched as a whole, it, could, it would be very easy for the Deathly Hollows to top this list. But because of the all too common decision from the studios to split final parts of franchises into two, the first part gets knocked a little further down the rankings. It's not to say the film isn't great, it really is, but rather that because it features the slightly less important part of the whole story, it's impossible to put it much higher. Whereas part two is the epic emotional conclusion, part one is heavier on plot and setup. Its purpose is pretty much to get the characters to where they need to be in order for the really exciting stuff to happen later. There's some really beautiful moments in this film, though, which elevate the quality over it, some over it, quality of it over some of Harry's other exploits. Sorry. Uh, the dance scene between Harry and Hermione set to the haunting the cave song, Oh Children, is a moving interlude for both characters and audiences. A tender moment between two friends as they try to make the most of an incredibly dark situation they find themselves in. There's also a gorgeous animated sequence as Hermione uh, narrates the story of the tale of the three brothers. Kudos to Framestore for the incredible visuals and Emma Watson for a quality delivered monologue. It remains one of the standout scenes across all the films, and it's wonderful to see something so fresh being utilized so well. This late into a film franchise has pretty much had its formula nailed by now. Any objections to this? I'm just going to go ahead and say it's kind of unfair to slam Deathly Hallows Part 1 for the whole two-parter thing. Most people don't remember this, but Deathly Hallows was the first to do this, to have the final part of the series be split into two parts. 
And that was mostly because J.K. Rowling essentially told uh, the guys at Warner Brothers, no, you can't cut this. No, you can't cut that. No, you're not cutting any of it. This is all important. So it's just a little kind of just shitty to do that, to blame it on that. Like, no, they didn't do that as a cash cow like with the Twilight movies. No, they didn't do that because they were lazy. They did that because it was essential. And the creator put her foot down and said, you have to do this. Seems fair. Sean? I think I just watched the pot deal go down. (laughs) What? No, no, no. Seriously. Um, In the parking lot of my place, uh, there's this retaining wall that separates it from a business park. And the same guy, like the last two nights, has come riding up to the wall on his on his bike and met somebody over there. And, of course, oh, totally nonchalant, you know, slipped in something. So, huh. All right. Anyway. Moving uh, on. Um, anyway. Um, so, uh, once more, Beyonce pretty much loses the plot entirely because... <laughs> No, you nitwit. I'm. You can really tell when somebody is writing about something they don't have a bloody clue about, and this is just such an instance. It's hard to appreciate these if you don't have some sense for just how closely adapted they are to their source material and the great pains that they went to to sort of work with the malleable parts that they could, very carefully cut what wasn't going to fit and make it viable and still end up with something that would please fans. And even then, there are still people who saw all eight movies who will still find the most inane, ultimately immaterial, inconsequential reasons to bitch about this, that, and the other thing, and why they think that it just makes some movie or other in the series an absolute epic fail. Uh, You know, not matters of taste like what Mark objects to, or things that Alexis and I maybe appreciate a little bit better as people who who have read the books, but just simply, bah, pox on you. You cut this out. That makes me sad. May my may a, may the next three generations of your line feel my butt hurt. Meh. <laughs> it's tantamount. It's tantamount. It's tantamount to meh. You didn't put my favorite obscure X Men in uh, X two. No. Um, or worse, it's when they actually listen, and then you get Olivia Munn as Psylocke. Yes, yes, we shall never forget the canon. Um, but I, I don't see how you really knock that down that, that far. Yeah, because Alexis said it best. We're not talking about fucking Breaking Dawn's butt crack or whatever the name of the last Twilight movie was. Um I've gradually wiped that from my memory. No fucks given. Um, or, you know, even for fuck knows what reason, deciding to split uh, Mockingjay 
into, which really didn't do didn't do that adaptation any favors. Nope. Uh, you know, it it was what it was so that it could be what it was meant to be. And I know that sounds vague. I know it sounds generic. But trust me, this will make a whole lot make a whole lot more sense next week when we go over these and we can really outline just how deftly they executed they executed this and why it was really to their benefit that they trusted Joe Rowling's judgment. Uh, two weeks, but yes, I completely agree with you. I, uh, I never got the sense. I never got the sense they were splitting Deathly Hollows for the sake of. I mean, I, look, I don't remember a lot about the first movie, to be honest with you, but I do remember the feeling of this stuff all seems important, uh, and I don't know how you cut any of this in order to get to the Great Wizard War at the end of the second one. Mm-hmm. So, all right, Alexis, we are up to the number three. Three from the top here. What do you think? Um, what are the three that are left? I, I hate to say, because I'm, I'm kind of spacing on what three are left. Azkaban, Phoenix, and Deathly Hallows Part 2. Okay, go. then I'm going to say Azkaban. You are incorrect. Sean? I swear to God, if she said Order of Phoenix is there, <laughs> I'm going to be pissed. Well, she pretty much gave away what her number one is going to be, so... Unfortunately, um, I'm going to guess that Beat Puree said Order of Phoenix. Indeed it is. No! <laughs> Anguish cry, reaching up to the skies. Why have you forsaken me? I'm done. Uh, here's what here's what it says here. Wisely trimming away a lot of the unnecessary chit chat from the weighty seven hundred and sixty six seven hundred and sixty six pages of the source material, the Order of the Phoenix film adaptation is a much better story as a result of this cutthroat editing. Whilst it's not technically the halfway point for the movies, it does mark a very important important turning point in the story. The arc of one through four was the return of Voldemort. And from this point on, the focus is on what Voldemort does next, now that he's back. Teased at the end of the Goblet of Fire, this is our first opportunity to really see Ralph Fiennes' terrifying incarnation of Voldemort. And consequently, the series continues in a much darker vein. The film is also notable for introducing us to the evil in human form, Dolores Umbridge, deliciously played by Imelda Staunton. Visually, it's an altogether more impressive film as well, and the action scenes taking place in the Ministry of Magic are really quite spectacular. We also have a key plot point about the prophecy involving Harry and Voldemort revealed, which once again acts as the catalyst for the direction the film takes from this point on. Where Goblet of Fire introduced us to death in, uh, in the Harry Potter universe by killing off Cedric Diggory, the Order of the Phoenix delivers a devastating blow with the death of Harry's godfather, Sirius Black, and things would never be the same again for Harry or for us. I actually don't disagree with any of that. I don't either. Uh, for the record, I can't really say much to it because we are talking about Order of Phoenix tonight, and as I said uh, when we did our last podcast, it is my favorite of the books and the movies, and I don't want to start on my tangent quite yet. Fair enough. Sean? 
Well done, Bagel Basket. You are the broken clock who is right twice a day. All right. We've got two movies left in two spaces last year. What do you think comes next, Sean? Oh, let's see. I think... See, now I'm trying to remember which two we have left. Um, half the band and second half of Death oh, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to guess that Bread Bowl picked um, uh, Azkaban. No. Coming in at number two is The Deathly Hollows Part 2. And coming in at number one, so we can oh, get done with this. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, one of my favorite movies of the series so far, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Well, that's fair. Not that it, not that it wasn't a bad movie, but someone's clearly playing a little bit on a biased curve. <laughs> uh, like I said, this is at filmoria.co.uk. Uh, Harry Potter movies ranked worst to best. If you just Google Harry Potter movies ranked and hit news, you'll you'll find it pretty easily. If you want to read uh, what the last two entries were and why she put them in that order, um, but. Time's a wasting, so let's get into Order of the Phoenix here, shall we? Because I know, uh, as Alexis just said, this is one of her uh, favorite movies. It's her favorite of the series. There's a lot to talk about here. And as I said, uh, I actually really enjoyed this. If nothing else, for the, uh, for the villain of the movie, I thought was fantastic. Not Dumbledore. Not uh, Voldemort. Never mind that guy. I'm talking about oh, uh, Dolores Umbridge. Fantastic. She's my favorite. But um, quick, 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 quick plot. So the Order of the Phoenix is a secret organization founded by Albus Dumbledore, and they inform Harry that the Ministry of Magic is oblivious to Lord Voldemort's return, and they appear to be in strict denial. Um, so if you want to talk about uh, the first, one of the first things that I want to talk about, and really one of the, the only things that really jumped out at me um, as a discussion point, but... Um, yeah, they are uh, basically, they are still making it look like Harry uh, is uh, making the whole, the whole thing up or it never happened or he's outright denying the, the existence of Voldemort at this point. Uh, at the Order's headquarters, Harry's godfather, Sirius Black, mentions that Voldemort is after an object that he did not have in his previous attack. Uh, so there's a issue going on between Hogwarts and the Ministry of Magic. So uh, the Minister of Magic, Cornelius Fudge, appoints a new Defense Against the Dark Arts professor. Yes, that old gag. Uh, and her name is Dolores Umbridge, whom we meet in Harry's trial uh, for performing magic outside of the school, uh, which, is also, which also deserves a little bit of conversation. And we'll get back to that in just a second. Uh, so it's Dolores Umbridge who... Uh, was not necessarily in favor of keeping Harry in the school, uh, is appointed Defense of the Dark Arts professor, and her way of doing things is copy out of the book. Right out of the book. Um, when Harry questions it and is summarily punished, uh, and he says, look, there's, there's stuff out there. That they're going to get us. We need to learn how to defend ourselves, and copying out of the book is not going to do it. Uh, and, and she won't listen to him. Uh, Hermione and uh, Ron decide they are going to take a gaggle of students uh, into hiding and teach them how to uh, defend themselves and you know with magic spells. Uh, some really really great sequences with that. 
Uh, and along the way, Harry and Cho Chang develop romantic feelings for each other. Um, another thing happening with Harry is he's starting to have visions uh, where uh, this one in particular, where he is, uh, a, he is a snake attacking Arthur Weasley. He uh, tells this to Dumbledore. Dumbledore explains he's, you know, having visions. He's connected to Voldemort and has Snape start to give him lessons in occlumency, which goes badly for Snape along the way. Uh, eventually, Harry is able to turn it back on him, and he sees that uh, his parents were not perfect. His father used to pick on poor Snape. This is why Snape uh, is a little mean to Harry. And those lessons summarily end. Uh, meanwhile, back in the city, Azkaban has, an, has a jailbreak. Tonight there's going to be a jailbreak. And Bellatrix Lestrange, played by uh, Helena Bonham Carter, breaks out along with nine other Death Eaters. Um, Harry has another vision, this one of Sirius being tortured by Voldemort. Uh, they decide that they're going to uh, try to warn, uh, warn Sirius about it. Uh, they are caught by Umbridge. Hermione tricks Umbridge into going into the forest where they run into Hagrid's giant half-brother, Grop. They also run into an army of centaurs, and that goes badly for Umbridge. Um, the gang ride on something called Thestrals, which look like dragons just made of bones, uh, in an attempt to stay serious. They head to the Ministry of Magic. Uh, they get there, they discover Lucius Malfoy, who is one of the Death Eaters, and good old Bellatrix. Um, Lucius says, you... You didn't have a vision. You had what Voldemort wanted you to see so that you would come here and find the prophecy for us. You fool. This is why evil always wins, because good is dumb. Um, five points if you know what that, came, what that line is from. Uh, a big wizard fight breaks out. Um, this ends with Sirius being uh, killed. Um, Dumbledore and Voldemort have a duel. Uh, Voldemort loses and escapes. Uh, and then the, at this point, everyone finds out that Voldemort is in fact back. Uh, Fudge um, quits the job. He uh, resigns in disgrace. Umbridge is removed from Hogwarts and Dumbledore returns as headmaster. He explains to Harry that the reason why he's been keeping his distance was he thought he was trying to keep him safe. Uh, and finally, we learn what the prophecy is that neither Harry nor Voldemort can live while the other one survives. There can be only one. A right. um, little bit of space balls, a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, the Highlander in there for you. So let's talk Order of the Phoenix here, Alexis. Um, first thing I want to throw at you real quick and then I want to I want to hear your, all the things you have to say I didn't struggle with it as such as I did with some of the other uh, movies but I did find it interesting that uh, we have a situation and it, it was it was plausible it was absolutely plausible for because of, you know people's uh, ability to just be in de abject denial <laughs> about things about things that are fairly obvious um you know, trying to keep things politically quiet. But, you know, you have a situation at the end of Goblet of Fire where a kid is murdered. 
Um, you have another kid yelling out, the devil has returned. And <laughs> the Ministry of Magic, and I wish, I guess, there had been more to it than this. I wish there had been more talking about, you know, why they need to keep this under wraps or why they refuse to believe it. Because it feels like it's just sort of put out there. And I know with the limits of film, there's only so much they could do. But it's like you just sort of have to accept that, yes, this is the state of things right now. Harry, bad, ministry, good, no Voldemort. Um, so so I, I just want to get you some of your thoughts on that. Well, I mentioned this when we talked about Goblet of Fire, that there was an important scene that was cut. That's uh, the man who, helped, who basically turned the port, the Triwizard Cup into a port key, who engineered Harry to help uh, to see Voldemort return and Cedric Diggory's death. Barty Crush Jr. was not killed, but subjected to the uh, Dementor's kiss. Uh, so there is no real eyewitness to this. They also have a couple other things that are missing from the fourth one that I think would have helped establish this a little bit more. Uh, Miranda Richardson's character, Rita Skeeter, uh, from the fourth book, fourth movie, I should say, actually makes more appearances throughout the book in that she starts writing more articles painting Harry as an attention-hungry drama queen, essentially. Uh, I, I won't go into the full details of how she's able to get this, but she starts slandering Harry pretty badly. It's not helped that she is getting information from the Slytherins, Draco, Crab, Goyle, Pansy Park, Pankins, how do you pronounce that girl's last name? I don't know. Uh, are all feeding her information that are going into these interviews are saying, yeah, Harry's unstable. Yeah, Harry's a kook. Yeah, he's just doing this to get attention. And Fudge, the minister, is eating this all up. So when Harry returns, not only do they no longer have an eyewitness, he has every reason to believe that Rita Skeeter's articles were correct, that Harry really is doing this for attention. I also want to point out, I did a little research when I was reading more about this movie and found an interview with uh, J.K. Rowling, who that she took the model of this world and actually directly, it was influenced by the government of Neville Chamberlain in Great Britain during the Second World War. Uh, those who study history know that he really tried to minimize the menace of the Nazi regime for political convenience. Fudge is in complete denial because he remembers just how horrible things were when Voldemort was out in the open, just how terrifying that first war was. Again, it could be compared to trying to minimize the Second World War because you don't want to try to relive the First World War. And, and I, as I said, that's why I bought it. I, um, I absolutely can understand um, on, a, on a very macro level you know, as it relates to real life why you would not want to admit the devil has returned. Or you have this great evil going on in the world because you don't want to get involved and you don't want to see people slaughtered. Um, but you're right. It, it lacks it, it lacks some um, some connective tissue because of the stuff that you said that, that they left out. If they had had those articles in there by by Rita Skeeter and they had maybe used that as more connective tissue, then I would have more easily bought where we were. But it's not that it comes out of left field, but I do feel like, you know, if the last image you see is Harry screaming bloody murder, you know, and, you know, and the poor kid's father yelling about his son and, and then people are realizing that something terrible has happened here. And then the next thing is, you know, Harry's a kook. Like, I feel like we missed a step. 
Again, I mean, and I think actually one of the great things about this book was that the Daily Prophet, the newspaper, really does put Harry and Dumbledore through the reins. And this is actually a kind of an interesting, abject look at how the media influences our day-to-day lives and our perceptions of things. And I thought that was just a really brilliant take on that. I mean, I refu- you cannot deny that many of us, our ideas of what's going on in the world, I mean, it is directly influenced by what we get out of the media. The Daily and the Daily Prophet is pretty much the only source of the media in the Harry Potter world. There's no uh, internet. As, well, you know if there ever is, I don't think they ever bring it up. Uh, there's no real television or anything. So the Daily Prophet is how they're all getting their news. And if the Daily Prophet starts saying that Harry Potter is a total nut job and that Dumbledore has gone off his deep end, that's their only source of news. Why would they think that they're being biased? Why would they think they're being wrong? You said a mouthful there. I completely agree with you. Sean, you want to jump in here, or is there another point you want to take us to? You know what? There's actually – first off, there's a Tumblr blog that I really need to look up and link our page to. It's uh, the diary of uh, of a Hogwarts IT rep. <laughs> It is it is absolutely fucking hilarious. Um, the the room of requirement uh, basically becomes his server room, <laughs> among among other various oddities. But um, you know, if I had to describe Order of Phoenix one way, it would be political. Uh, for a number of reasons. Well number, well, number one, you describe an analog to Neville Chamberlain. It kind of makes me wonder, and I say this only about you know, a half, at least 45% jokingly, if Dolores Umbridge is supposed to be maybe a little bit of a bitch slap at Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> um, you are on to something. J.K. Rowling has openly admitted she's ne- that she will never reveal who Umbridge was based off of. She, she said it's based off of someone, but she will never give a name. Uh, I'm, you know, simply because, in a way, she reminds me so much of the main villain of uh, the Happiness Patrol, one of the weirdest and worst Doctor Who episodes of all time, which was pretty much an overt shot across the bow at Thatcher's administration. I'm going to guess Thatcher. That, that's just what my gut's telling me. But anyway, um, most of the tone of the movie is rooted in a kind of unsettled paranoia, one that Emma Watson herself, in interviews leading up to the movie, uh, attributed to possibly being kind of, She said it was someone inspired by the mood that kind of hovered over the fallout from the July 7th, 2005 London bombing attacks. Um, And you see that running through a lot of this. Um, Lots of unease, lots of paranoia. You have the Order of Phoenix making uh, a concerted effort to protect Harry at all costs because in this case, they do know better. They do know what they're do- what they're doing. They know just exactly what kind of evil's out there, and they have a pretty good idea what it's after. 
and Harry is just not is, and the other students they're just not having it. They feel like they're being kept purposely in the dark, and they feel a sense of helplessness, which from which springs you know Dumbledore's army, and it really takes Snape somebody who's had at least one foot in the darker in the darker doorway the entire time kind of metaphorically bitch slapping the reality into him throughout these occlumency lessons to, just to show him just how much he doesn't know and how much can hurt him and all the while you've got Harry who's filled with this misplaced um, angst and kind of butthurt bravado about feeling like he should be above being kept on the sidelines, like he should be above being protected because look at everything he's already confronted. Uh, Look at everything that a combination of just natural ability and dumb luck has pulled him through. He's kind of started drinking his own Kool-Aid by this point. And he starts and he starts to kind of find himself more and more alienated from people, which doesn't really get fleshed out as well as it could have been had some things been left in the movie, but at the same time, I understand why they were cut. They were the most expendable darlings of the source material. And valuable though they would have been, it would have made for a longer movie that would have probably gotten harder to bear at its ultimate running time. But what you ultimately have is you have a world under siege. And, you know, it's it's easy for me to forget that this year is the first time that that a high school class will have learned about 9-11 as an event that happened before they were born. So (laughs) it's easy easy to forget that while 2005, it's easy to forget kind of what its place was in history. Because while it was four years removed from the actual 9-11 attacks proper, um... The hunt for Bin Laden was still on. Uh, As I said, the London bombings had happened. Uh, The war on terror was beginning to hit hit critical mass because uh, the, the U.S. and a few other foreign allies were rallying their kind of, I'm just going, I'm just going to say it, ill-advised, um, war on Iraq and it really manages to kind of mirror in kind of a very British subtle way uh, what everybody else in the real world was dealing with at the time and it did it kind of which is more than I can say for a movie like fucking V for Vendetta uh, without kind of overshadowing the source material with what it was beating you senseless over the skull with. 
<laughs> and I, and I well, and I have to attribute that to the fact that, and I'll get into some more trivia here in a little in a little bit when the time comes, um, is the fact that David Yates, who would go on to direct the rest of the series, stepped into the director's chair. Uh, he was chosen in no small part for this movie because he had an experience with. Uh, taught but evenly handled political thrillers like State of Play. Uh, And take into consideration that Alfonso Cuaron was actually, actually said that he wanted to come back, that he wanted to do this once, but they passed him over. And uh, Terry Gilliam, from what I understand, effectively told Warner Brothers to eat a bag of Yankee dicks because he was evidently still a little butthurt about being passed over to direct the first movie. In fact, I believe his exact words were, quote, they had their chance and they blew it, end quote. So it's something else that I've complimented the series on already, and that's the fact that Chris Columbus was the right choice to direct the first two movies because... He he had that Midas touch with childlike wonder that they needed to, that needed to come across early on. Alfonso Cuarón was the right choice for the third movie because everything took a darker, much more grave turn as we began to open the door a little bit more and peer a little bit deeper inside the darker side of the Wizarding World. Um. Forgive me, I'm totally blanking on the director of... Mike Newell. Mike Newell, thank you. I almost said Mike Wendell for some reason. Uh, Mike Newell was the right man for the the utter, almost popcorn movie visual spectacle of Goblet of Fire. And for this one, they needed somebody that was going to... Kind of thread the wizarding world with a very real sense of political unease, tension, distrust, um, uh, division, uh, division, paranoia, all of that, but do it with a very gentle hand. And so, yeah, Yates, I believe, I don't think there was a more perfect person to take it over than him. And I feel like it shows in just every single aspect of the movie. And by the way, somebody out there, Facebook message me, tweet me if you want to. I still insist that's Margaret fucking Thatcher. <laughs> um, um, I, I will add into what you were saying. It is important to note that Yates not only directed the remaining four Harry Potter movies, he is also uh, confirmed to direct Fantastic. He has directed Fantastic Beasts and he's been Beast, and he's been confirmed to direct the sequel. You know, actually, the the one other thing I would throw in now that you mention it is that this was, I believe, the only one of the series that was not written by Steve Close. It, it wasn't that he had any problem with it or anything. He simply had a prior engagement. But do you want me to look that up? Uh, uh, yeah, feel free. I, I I feel like in my research, I think he actually wrote all but just this one, but just this one movie, and uh, that's one more area where I think Yates deserves so much credit 
is despite his not being there and the fact that he was an extremely close collaborator with Joe Rowling, that it still retained its its faithful embrace of the source material. And again, you know, sometimes you have to kill your darlings. Anybody who's ever been a creator know been a creator knows this. Um and what they cut, we can get into that possibly next, why I kind of, what I kind of regretted that they left out and why. But somehow they cut some things that really were vital to a lot of what made the book so intriguing and what helped it flesh the characters out so much more. But it never really felt like it wanted for quality. Unlike last week when we were talking about Goblet of Firemark and Alexis had to bring up a couple times, well, this makes a little more sense in the book than it does here. You know, all things considered, I really felt like what they left left out, they left out, and you could still watch this movie, just go into it raw with no experience with the books whatsoever, and it would still make sense. It would still be very low on the key plot on the key plot holes. In fact, I can't think of very many at all, except for maybe what cutting creature out might have caused. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but um, it, it was it was immensely solid. Couple things. Uh, one, the Daily Mail describes Staunton's portrayal of Umbridge as a refreshing addition, with the character herself described as a cross between Margaret Thatcher and Hyacinth Buck. Two, and um, there's a lot more to get to, so I don't want to debate this too long, or um, maybe not debate it at all. But I, I, I do have one um, disagreement with with all of what you said there, and that is I, I never got the sense in this movie that because you guys have talked about it before, and I was looking forward to here, and I never got the sense that Harry's ego was getting out of control, so much more that he was racked with guilt, he couldn't stop. It comes. Um, you couldn't stop Alexa, from- you want to say it or should I? Uh, well, I do have some stuff to say about Harry's ego, but please go ahead. <laughs> um, no, no, I just, sorry, I, I'm bad puppy for interrupting. <laughs> I, um, I, I got the sense that a lot of what was distancing Harry from his friends was guilt, the feeling that I'm going to get you all killed. Um, you know the the sense that he couldn't stop this he couldn't stop Voldemort from killing this other kid, and that he just was so internally just felt twisted and you know and that every, that are, that those that are closest to him this is the superhero issue those that are closest to him will will become hurt and he just felt like look I need to, I need to not be around anybody and he even makes a point of saying something to that effect when Hermione's insisting that he teach everyone how to defend themselves. And he says, look, I, I, yes, I did all these wonderful things, but I almost nearly had help every single time, or it was dumb luck. <laughs> and she goes, oh, you're being modest. And he goes, no, that's what happened. Um, and you see, and again, you see an arc of his, uh, you see an arc in his character as he's teaching. It's one of the, some of the best parts of the movie are the teaching scenes because he starts to have a confidence about himself. You know, he, re- he regains that sense of self that, that he lost in the last movie. Um, you know, and then, of course, it's, it's not shattered, but it's challenged again towards the end. 
Um, and we'll talk about this more when we get to the half-blood prince, but we're right back to that same point again when he comes to the realization that in order for this to stop, he's got to go after the Horcruxes. And I, and I don't want to give too much of it away, but he basically hits that same nail one more time, that same tone. So if there's something about his ego that I missed in the film, I'm happy to hear it. Now, if it's in the book and just not as, as well represented in the film, that's fine as well. But I think that's what I'm trying to draw attention to, Alexis. Well, per, for me personally, I never really thought so much of an ego thing, but more an anger thing. Harry is alone in this story. He, you know, half the wizarding world thinks he's crazy. Dumbledore is keeping his distance. He can't really spend time with his godfather because, according to the wizarding world, he's still a wanted criminal. And wasn't established in the movie, but also in the books, it's worth mentioning. Uh, Ron and Hermione are made prefects of Gryffindor House, uh, so they actually have a lot more responsibility and other things that they've got to do that Harry just can't be a part of. This is a story where he is really alone, and he's really upset about it. He's angry that he has to go through all of this. Whenever pe- there's so many scenes when Hermione and Ron are like, "You should go to Dumbledore. You should talk to him," and he flees. He goes, "No, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't attribute that to ego. I think about all the times that I've been so angry about something. I don't even see reason or logic. We've all been there." And I think that's what the thing is. I don't think he's egotistical. I think he is about ready to just go punch through some walls. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Uh, absolutely. Um, again, just to sort of move this on, though, if you feel the need to double back, I certainly won't, uh, won't stop you. But I wanted to draw a quick attention to the very first scene of the movie, uh, which I swear to God, watching it on Sunday, I thought it was a dream sequence. And the fact that it never ends, and clearly not a dream sequence, was a little shocking to me. And this is a craft issue, not, not, not a, a cinematography issue, not anything more than that. And this is also not a complaint. I just, the way that that opening scene is shot, you've got the kids sort of standing there like the children of the corn. You know, I didn't even realize that was Dudley at first. Um, and my I say, one of the only things I liked about Goblet of Fire was no frickin' Dursleys. Oh, Lordy. Boy, am I sick of them at this point. You know, I think, I think after he turned the one of them into a balloon, I had about all enough of that family that I needed to see. Uh, but we start off this one, and, and you don't necessarily see the parents at first. You see the, uh, you see the kid, and the kid's a bully, and he's got his pack of wolves around him. And Harry's sitting on a swing, and I thought, oh, you know, here's what's going to happen. It's a dream sequence when he's going to push Harry, and Harry's going to fucking murder this kid out of rage and wake up, you know, somewhere. And that's not what happens. Instead, they're attacked by uh, the mentors. But, uh, oh, weird sequence. And, and it, tonally, it was, it was just an odd way to start the film. Um, not bad, just odd. Struck, it struck me as odd, Alexis. It struck me as odd. I agree it is a little bizarre. It's very different than what we've seen before. It's not, you know, focusing on the wizarding world so much. I'm trying to think of the proper way to word this. I kind of like it, though, in a way, because Harry might still be dealing with, you know, what has happened. It, he may still just not be totally there, you know, a little bit of a PTSD thing going on. They established that he's listening to the radio um, and in the books, they talk about how he reads the papers in the 
listens to the radio like crazy for hints on what Voldemort is doing. He figures if there's something big enough that happens in the muggle world, chances are pretty good it's going to be linked back to him. Uh, you know, beginning scene of Half-Blood Prince. We see the Millennium Bridge being destroyed. We see all this uh, stuff happening to the non-magic world. Harry's looking for hints of that kind of stuff. I also kind of uh, like that he's. I also do kind of like the scene with the other kids that he's watching on the on the playground. It, it kind of calls back to Harry just sort of wondering, you know, what if you know they could have different that night. You know, what if I could have had a normal life like that? Yes, that that um, part of it I like. Um, it's, just, it's very gray. You know what I mean? It's almost surreal the way that it starts. And so the fact that it's actually happening and these are all, you know, life events in, 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 this, in this movie was a little startling. Um, Sean, were mm-hmm. you about to say something? What was that? I, no, I, I wasn't sure if you were about to say something or not. I, I heard a, a noise. I wasn't sure if you were trying to get in or, uh, or if that was Alexis. Um, oh, nope, I'm just playing with the drawer. I'm going to go ahead and uh, I'm going to say one more thing um, and then I'm going to sort of turn it over to you, Alexis, because I know there were some things you wanted to talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. Voldemort aside, let, let us go ahead and say you can't have these movies without Darth Vader, but, but there's other stuff happening. And so let's, let's put Darth Vader aside for a moment and let's talk about some other villains. Um, so, when I say, so when I say that, what I'm trying to say is Dolores Umbridge is my favorite villain of this series. She's Absolutely. Awesome. She's um, Melda Staunton had an amazing performance as this woman. I thought her motivations, her tactics, her uh, her underlying uh, philosophy and beliefs were all very believable. Were were uh, pointed, and it made for a great villain. Um, you know, it, 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 we, we, I talked about Goblet of Fire uh, last week and about how. And so it's very focused on this period in a, in a teenager child's life that I just don't have any interest in. Uh, she made me interested because there's, there was a villain with a lot of zest here. It was a, set a high bar for these kids to deal with. And it sets all this other stuff in motion that was really interesting. Um, and, it, and it sort of ends, not sort of, it ends with a revolt <laughs> by Ron's brothers which almost had me jumping up and clapping. I loved it. I loved how they handled it. <laughs> the, the whole sequence of events of them disrupting the classroom and, you know, and the fireworks going off and then all of these dictates falling off the walls. It was all perfect. I, it, it, uh, I had two songs going through my head through this movie. One of them you guys won't know, uh, but it's a song by Testament from their second to last al- al- album which you can hear us review on the Metal Hammer of Doom in the archives right here on the Rattle and Broadcasting Network. Um, the song is called Rise Up, and, and the chorus is, well, when I say uh, rise up, you say war, rise up war. And I kept hearing that as they were learning their magic spells and trying to, you know, learning how to defend themselves. You know, Dumbledore's army was rising up to fight the war. And then the other one was Schools Out by Alice Cooper. Mm. <laughs> I wish, it's not that kind of a movie, but I totally heard, you know, if I could re-edit it, it would, I would have had schools out uh, <laughs> as they were trying to erect <laughs> the classroom and shit flying off the walls. I'm, I'm going to hush up now, Alexis, and let you uh, sort of take over here. All right. Well, yeah, there is no denying it. 
Dolores Jane Umbridge has got to be one of the greatest fictional villains of recent history. Even Stephen King has gone on record saying that Dolores Umbridge is one of the greatest uh, creations of all time. He adores her. I adore her. There is nothing like an insanely amazing, compelling villain. And it is rare to read a book or watch a movie and a character makes you so mad, so angry that you are just like, oh, God, you, you, you have to stop. You have to take yourself out of that, that, that image. You have to stop watching movies, stop reading a book for a single. They're not real. They're not real. Calm down. Because it is impossible to read the book or watch the movie and not want to punch Umbridge. She is that great, and I love that this is a character that can get such a reaction out of people. And they didn't when ruin her. I, they didn't ruin her it, by saying, oh, she's really, she's really a Death Eater following the Dark Lord. No, she's just a dick. And that's perfect. She is, she is, she's a Nazi following the regime. There is no other way to put it. I remember, actually, a conversation I had with my aunt not too long ago. She was asking about Harry Potter, and I, the only way I could talk about how great it was was I brought up the scene of the blood quill. First time I read it, I had shivers. <laughs> I was freaking out going, yeah. oh, my God. It is it's just disturbing to think that something like this could exist. And Staunton nails it perfectly. The fact that she comes across as so sickeningly sweet. I love the scene in the beginning where she interrupts Dumbledore's speech at the start of the year term and all of the professors, Dumbledore, McGonagall, Snape, even freaking Snape, they're just looking at her like, oh, bitch, you did not just do what we think you did. <laughs> she, she, is, she is every fat, two-faced, politically maneuvering suburban church lady I have ever met and wanted and just wanted to staple things to her face. <laughs> like I, and the fact that Stop is able to perform that so well. I, I've always used the scene where she confronts Hagrid when he's come back from trying to recruit the giants. And she says, well, if he, I were you, I wouldn't even bother unpacking my things. But she does it with that smile. Credit where credit's due. Stone actually has quite the beautiful smile, and she's got that mm-hmm. big grin on her face while she's saying this. One thing Winfrey and I have talked about, whether it was on his show or on Damn You Hollywood, is that the best villains are the ones that believe they are right to the very core of who they are. That they yep. are not evil for the sake of being evil. You know, they are not mustache twirly tie a dance into the track. You know they are, for all of it, for all of his uh, faults, and God knows there were many. You know Ultron, another example of this was a character who had come to a conclusion, and this conclusion for him was right, and thought he was doing the best thing, making the best decision. What makes it evil is that it's horrifying. You know. <laughs> so in, you know what? I just I just realized who Dolores Umbridge reminds me of. Oh. Well, you you have to take the uh, the sweetness factor and ramp and ramp it up by just infinite multitudes. But in terms of her, her general motivations, kind of her raison d'être, she reminds me of uh, Patty Hughes uh, in Damages, as played by Glenn Close. Um, this, this just always scheming, 
always maneuvering, always perpetually confident in her own position position of power. Um, except in damages, uh, it's you know Patty is, is much more cold and is much more cold and ruthless. Um, uh, Wait, and and just absolutely none of the uh, was it? How did I hear her describe once a uh, personality like poison honey? That was the uh, description on the uh, insert of the book. Yes, yes, um, yeah. We, we, but absolute. But that's but that's the difference. Um, you know, to to borrow one of my favorite lines from Jim Ross, whereas Patty Hughes could be cold as a stepmother's kiss. Um, and or not a stepmother, uh, mother as a mother-in-law's kiss. I think it was, um, yeah, cold as a mother-in-law's kiss. Um, Dolores, uh, like I said, it's it's something that it, that especially if you grew up around a lot of of like I said, midwestern, very sanitized suburban churches. You know exactly the type that I mean. Because if you grew up there, you can't tell me you didn't you didn't meet at least one Dolores Umbridge. At, su- I do at also, some point, oh, sorry, you did. Sorry, I do want to also go back to Mark. You were talking about the Weasley brothers' exit. <laughs> You're not alone in wanting to jump up and cheer. That <laughs> for many people was their favorite moment in the book. And the, the line's like, you know, I think our time at Hogwarts has ended, Fred. I couldn't agree more to you, George. I'm paraphrasing that. That line is directly in the book. Right. And so, and I remember the first time I saw the movie, I was sitting there chomping at the bit, just on the edge of my seat going, uh-huh. this is it. This is it. Just geeking <laughs> out because I was so looking forward to this scene. They go on in the books more to talk about how the Weasley Brothers exit goes on to become the stuff of legends. This is a story that Hogwarts will tell over and over again, you know, just like this is just such a monumental thing. And they capture that so perfectly in the book. <sighs> there is it's- one thing, however, I do need to point out that did kind of drive me nuts. Um, sorry. Uh, you, you guys remember when I talked about Prisoner of Azkaban and the major plot hole that really made me angry. The fact that they did mm-hmm. not establish who had written the Marauder's Map when the guys were right there and they could have written it in and would have taken less than 30 seconds. Sure. Well, there is a major plot point that they again overlook in the book, which I really hate that they left because the chance to put it in was perfect. It would not have increased the running time. It would not have been expensive. Mark, you brought up the Dementors attacking Harry and Dudley at the beginning, right? Yes. They never established in the movie where those came from, who sent them, how come they weren't around Azkaban, correct? Yes. There's a line in the book. Uh, uh, Umbridge has caught Harry, Ron and Hermione trying to use the flu network, uh, that, that's the, the, the fireplace network, uh, to try to talk to Sirius. And she's trying to get information out of him, and she says, you know, I'll have to use the Cruciatus curse, but the minister doesn't know won't hurt him. And then she says the line, I have to do something to shut you up. The Dementors, I sense, certainly didn't do that. 
Umbridge is the one who sent the Dementors after him in the beginning. And I just thought that was such a great revelation to show how unbelievably twisted this character is that she was willing to send a, a, a young, a young, two young kids into a state worse than death by having the Dementors kiss put on them. Because Harry was either going to have his soul sucked out or he was going to be expelled for the use of magic in front of a muggle. Can I um, challenge you on that? Uh, and, and if you need to draw more references from the book, that's fine. But okay. what? But before I do that, let me ask a, just a simple question. What was her motivation for sending the Dementors after Harry in the book? Because Harry was not shutting up. Because Harry, was, Harry and Dumbledore were making her boss, Fudge, look like a fool by maintaining that Voldemort had returned. She, want, she didn't look at that and seeing that Voldemort was a threat. She saw Harry as the threat. And she wanted to, she basically, she, for the record, it's established that uh, the minister did not know that she did this. He did not give her the, okay, she went behind his back. And she, she's, it's very similar to people who basically say the ends justify the means, whatever the cost. Okay. Um, I can see that as a strong, uh, as a strong point in her character, I can see that as a um, as a very strong reveal, but my my challenge is maybe it was better off being left out because it also makes her look too sycophantic, too villainous. It it goes over the the line that's drawn as I was saying before. Was why I compared it to Ultron was she has a philosophy and a belief, and she has an. Inst- these are the pillars of her character and that is where her allegiance lies and that is it there's no greater cause here than those three things there's no nefarious plot as I said she's not ruined by working for Voldemort in any way she's just a she's just a jerk who believes that the Ministry of Magic is right that she hates kids and you know and, uh, and she's doing what she needs to do to, uh, to you know, to further that along, and I feel like, you know, again, she, she in her mind feels that she's doing the right thing, um, and there's no, and it doesn't go any further than that. And I think if you start, you know, and if you if you open up your 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 if character is also, you know, a child killer, <laughs> it's like ow. Oh. All right, now yeah, you've just gone a little over the line here. Now this is too easy. You know what, Mark? This is what I want to do. I want to put a pin in this conversation, and I want us to bring it up in two weeks when we talk about Deathly Hallows. Because those of you who have seen the movies and read the books, you know Umbridge does return for the final story. And I want us to bring this discussion up again when we see just what she's doing in Deathly Hallows. Okay, fair enough. Um, anything else you want to bring up? Because uh, I'm out of material at this point. <laughs> well, I'm kind of surprised that none of us have brought up the addition of one of the other greatest characters in the series, Luna. Oh, she's oh, wonderful. Luna. And I love the character. She's, Luna's hilarious and just so much fun. The fact is that she is incredibly loyal to Harry. She she makes it clear. She believes him. Her father, her, who publishes... A, what is essentially the wizarding equivalent of the National Enquirer, 
they believe him and they stand by him. This is a character that you would probably see as just like, oh, God, don't talk to that person. Oh, God. I mean, for even Hermione accidentally calls her by her, her nickname, Looney Luna. But she is just such a fun character. She is unwaveringly loyal, and she is just so unbelievably optimistic, which, frankly, Harry needs now more than anything. You know the story about her doing part? Sean, you were were talking there. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, to to kind of bounce off that a little bit, um, there's – there's also, I believe, a great story. I can't remember it, but I remember being very touched by it when I read it, um, about how the actress who ultimately played her uh, really lacked for confidence. Really lacked for confidence. Um, and I think kind of, kind of had some shyness issues and... Um, some doubts about whether uh, she was kind of pretty enough to play the part. And I seem to recall, I think it was actually Joe Rowling herself who kind of brought her out of, brought her out of her shell a little bit. There's an element of that story that needs mentioning. According to my wife, she was saying that uh, uh, the girl who um, plays Luna brought a, showed her to a book signing <laughs> and was telling Rowling that she was this huge fan and everything. She's also telling her that she has uh, battled an eating disorder. And, oh, uh, yes, and, yes, that was it. Thank you. And mm-hmm. mental health issues going on at the time. And Rowling said, look, not for nothing, but if you can get yourself together and zipped up and, uh, and, straight, and uh, straight and narrow, I will go ahead and cast you in my movie. And the kid, inspired by, by that, went, went ahead and got herself right. And she ended up being played, being cast as Luna. That well, yeah, smart. and uh, and and by the way, um, for all those body image issues, um, I, I don't mean to demean that having a number of friends who uh, friends who have grappled with them, but uh, feel free to Google her. She uh, she 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 is an utter bona fide undisputed knockout. Now. Actress's name is Ivana Lynch, for those who need a reminder. Yes. Um, the only other things that that I would kind of bounce off that and add are I'm going to steal a little bit of Alexis's thunder and point out that there are some things that come across in the book that the movie feels just the slightest bit hollow without. And that's all the more reason why I really recommend going through and reading and reading it. Briefly uh, the movie has no emphasis on Quidditch, which is unfortunate because that's really where Ron starts to come out of his shell and starts to develop um, a sense of more confidence and more self-worth when he makes the team as a keeper and struggles early on, but ultimately becomes becomes a linchpin of the Gryffindor squad. Um uh, Elsewhere, I would also say that I'm definitely disappointed that there could, that time couldn't be made to, for just a brief little interlude, a little aside to um, explore the scene visiting uh, Neville's parents 
and seeing that they're going to that they're destined to spend the rest of their lives in St. Mungo's as a casualty of Voldemort's previous assault. Um, because it really makes it it really kind of fills him in from being mostly a really pitiable character to one who really like almost everybody like almost everybody else on on his side of this conflict has experienced absolutely unimaginable loss at the hands of this conflict and that while he may be a little bit hapless he's actually the blood of two formerly proud decorated aurors himself and Finally, as Alexis alluded to briefly, it's a real shame that we don't get to see more of the conflict between Draco, Hermione, and Ron as prefects. Because not only does it further help to help to establish, well, for one thing, the ongoing conflict between conflict between the Dark Lord and Hogwarts, but uh, well, and also Harry's. Um, helpless separation from his friends and everybody else that he trusts, but it also serves to really deepen the spark of romance between Ron and Hermione. Again, they get there a different way, but it just felt so much more satisfying on the page, at least in that sense, than what we got on than what we got on the screen. But again, the most remarkable thing is that while I missed those elements and I regretted that they weren't in the movie more, ultimately, I just have precious few bad things to say about it. It's almost without a doubt, in my opinion, my personal highlight of the entire series. Not that the following three movies were bad, but this goes down as far and away my favorite. All right. Um, is there anything else? Because if not, we uh, we have precious few minutes left of live time, and who knows what <laughs> recording time. Um, so we need to get to the half blood prince here. So Alexis, final words. I still stand by it. Order of the Phoenix is my absolute favorite of the series, and frankly, I could go on forever talking about all the things I loved about it. But you are correct. We have overused our time talking about it. We still have a lot more to talk about with Half-Blood Prince. We really do need to get a move on. All right. Uh, for the sake of time here, um, let's get right into uh, the plot. So um, I'm going to try to shorten this down a smidge. Basically, this revolves around the hiring of uh, Homer Potions Professor Horace Slughorn. Uh, Horace has something that Dumbledore needs. It's a memory that has been tampered with. Um, and so the whole thing revolves around uh, Dumbledore rehiring this guy, getting Harry to befriend him and see if he can figure out what in the hell is missing from this memory, which as it turns out is, uh, is uh, Voldemort asking, uh, uh, what's his face? Slughorn. Slughorn. Thank you. Slughorn, what's a Horcrux? What's an arc? Uh, what's a Horcrux, and how do you make one, and what do you do, and all that good stuff. And it's, this is this is the all the stuff that's going to lead into the Deathly Hollows. 
because uh, ultimately what Voldemort has done is he's done murdered a lot of people and he split his soul into seven pieces. Uh, Dumbledore has found two of the Horcruxes and he's destroyed them. Um, and this whole thing leads to a, uh, a final uh, confrontation where they think they have the third one and it turns out they don't, spoiler alert. Uh, the other side of this is that good old, uh, good old Draco Malfoy, your friend and mine, currently on The Flash playing a douchebag. Um, <laughs> Draco Malfoy uh, has been selected by Lord Voldemort to go kill Dumbledore. And uh, the whole movie, he's gearing up for it. He's gearing up for it. He's learning how to use the vanishing cabinet so he can bring over Bellatrix and her band of merry men to, uh, to do the deed. Um, he finally does it. We have our moment of truth and Snape ends up doing it for him because he loses his will to do so. Um, of course we will, we, at this point we are led to believe that Snape is working for, uh, the dark Lord. We will find out what's really going on in the next two films. Uh, but ultimately there's our big reveal, our big shock, the, uh, you know the the big the big tragic moment before we have us our, our raging. Not for, wasn't a shock to anybody who had who had access to YouTube at that point. <laughs> Fair enough, <laughs> uh, but yes, good old Snape, uh, Mr. Rickman, then kills Dumbledore and sends him tumbling to his rocky doom. Um, and at the very end of this thing, uh, Harry, <laughs> Harry and, Herm- and Hermione have their fellow have their fellowship of the rings moment. Which let, let me say this: every every time I've, I've sat through the Lord of the Rings, I have cried like a child. I cry at the end of Fellowship. I I don't cry as much at the end of the Two Towers. No, I cry at the bit where uh, where they're in. Um, I think it's not Osgiliath. Oh shit! What? Um, they're in some city uh, that's being attacked. Gondor. By, yeah, they're in Gondor. Um, it's one of the oh, smallest. One of the smaller outposts in Gondor that's being attacked by the uh, by the Nazgul, and um, oh wait 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 that, that, never mind I think we're I think we're talking about a different moment that you tear up at I thought I thought you were going to reference when uh, King Aragorn um, I've, yeah I've gotten there <laughs> says to the yeah <laughs> says says to them you bow to no one. Yeah, and I can't. I I sound like I have a speech impediment. I can't get a word out. I just okay. Just my quivers of tears. No, my, I'm talking about my my, my my apologies. I was guessing at the wrong moment. Yeah, I, I, this is the two towers where um, there's a part of Gondor that's being attacked. Faramir is trying to fend them off. You know, at this point, he's got the ring. Um, uh, the, the Nazgul show up. Uh, what do you call it? Frodo starts to get all evil-eyed. <laughs> Sam starts yelling at Faramir. See, this is how your brother got killed. Do you understand what's happening here? And he goes into this whole speech, and Sam Sam's speech always breaks me down. Um, and then, of course, at the very end of the movie, at the very end of the Return of the King, that whole sequence <laughs> of the coronation, I I can't take it. But, um, <laughs> but going back to Fellowship, I was saying this to Sean offline. Uh, it's one of my favorite parts of the trilogy, um, and I actually watched it before the show tonight. It reminded me of the end of, of the Half-Blood Prince in its own way. Because you have this thing where you have the hero going, look, I have to do this by myself. And there's this 
friend, this, this dedicated friend that says, you're right. You have to do this by yourself and I'm going with you. Oh, literally Sam's words. Our mind uses slightly different. You know, you, you're a great person, Harry, and I admire you before you dance. <laughs> We're going with you. There's nothing to do about it. And I'm watching this on Sunday and I just start bawling. Um, you know, there's, there's something about that sort of that level of of um, fellowship and dedication and friendship that really brings it out of me. And I, you know, as I said to Sean, I said, I said, I, I really came to love uh, Half-Blood Prince, if nothing else, but for that fellowship of the rings moment. So Sam still wins because he nearly drowns in doing so. She just sort of elbows Harry. Um, but go ahead, Alexis. What are some of your thoughts here on this movie, things worth talking about? Well, for the record, you're not the only one. I watched Half-Blood Prince again last night taking notes. When Dumbledore fell and everyone raised their wands in salute to him, I did start crying. But I also started crying for another reason, uh, and I mentioned this to you guys before the podcast started. Uh, Alan Rickman, who, of course, played uh, Severus Snape, passed away uh, earlier this year. And an article came out that w- they announced his death at the, what's it called, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. That's the Harry Potter theme park. And when they announced that everyone in the park had a wand, whether they were, you know, a guest, an attendant, whatever, they all held their wands up in salute exactly like the end of this movie. And when I saw it, I, I just started bawling. It, it is so touching. It is so strong. I, have to, the one, I did find one thing kind of bugged me watching it again, though, about, your, like you said, the fellowship moment. Why was Ron sitting in the background? <laughs> Like, you know, why is the scene between Harry and Hermione? Why isn't Ron coming up saying, yep, we're with you till the end, or whatever the hell the line is? You know, it's like, why is he the one sitting back there in the shadows? Let me, I mean, I don't know if the book gives any indication, but my, my interpretation of that is he's dedicated to them. The mission seems to be besides the point. And, and I think it, 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 it's all just too heavy. Not so heavy that he doesn't go, but heavy enough that he's like, look, I don't know what any of this is all about, and I get the, and I get the sense that things are going to get really, really bad, and it's a bit over my head, but I'm with you. If nothing else, I'm here. I'm your friend. That was, that was what I, that's how I interpreted that particular direction. I guess I just would have liked the scene a little bit more if Ron came up and said, yeah, you don't have to do this alone, or, you know, whatever the corny speech was. <laughs> um, but maybe that's why they didn't do it, is they didn't want to go cornball. You know, Hermione's the one that sort of sees the bigger picture. Ron, the portrayal, at least to me in the movies, has been, you know, he, he's solidly Harry's friend, but he's a bit of a dim bulb. I guess I could see a little bit of that. Um, I guess we're moving on. Um, I, unless there was something Sean wanted to add to that conversation. Well, Ron was the Larry to their Mo and Curly. <laughs> okay, that's one way to put. He is for the most part the Shemp. Um, <laughs> um, it's well because for and, and you know that's that's mean, but in a way it's kind of fitting because here you got uh, 
two performers in Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson who deservedly, I think, should go down as a couple of the most accomplished, intelligent performers of their generation quite easily. And it shines through in every note of their of their performances. Um, they're both very very identifiable, and, and so, are, so are their characters. Um, Harry obviously is the central child of destiny. Uh, he is the center spoke of this whole uh, hero's journey. Um, Hermione is obvious is obviously loyal, incredibly loyal, incredibly smart. Um, very passionate about what she believes believes in and toward her friends. And Ron, when you get past clumsy, for a good bit of the series, it's kind of hard to pass the Plinket test with him. Um, and it's it's the same way with with Rupert Grint, kind of. Is unless you really know yourself as far as what as far as what he's been in, you think, okay, Emma Watson, um, Harry Potter, uh, the Bling Ring, perks of being a wild, of being a, of being a wallflower. Um, you can think of several other things she's been in. She's been in. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe, you think of Harry Potter. I'm blanking on it, but you think of that um, uh, British thing he was in with John Hamm. Uh, you think of the Lady in Black, um, that play he did during the Harry Potter series where he got Starkers on stage. You can name several other things that he's been in. You can't really name quite as much that, quite as much that Rupert Grint has done since, since Harry Potter, and that's unfortunate because he's he's largely a talented a talented guy, but he's. He's just kind of there to be sort of the C three PO. For the record, Ripper Grint's done a lot of uh, smaller movies uh, that have not had wide releases. Um, he's done a lot of films that had wide releases in the UK, but really didn't make it over here uh, to America. So he he does yeah. have quite a few notches under his belt. It's just here and us Yanks haven't had a chance to really see that. Yeah. Um, something I wanted to mention just really, really quickly, because I'd be remiss if I didn't, I'm going to put the, in the fucking title. Um, Half-Blood Prince, a uh, third part of this, uh, the plot revolves around Harry finding a textbook that's got some notes in it, and those are the best kinds of textbooks for all you college kids out there. I always want to get the yeah. used ones with oh, yeah. all the notes in them. Well, so did this one, uh, and it belonged to the Half-Blood Prince, and one of the one of the best parts of the movie uh, to me and a, a defining point in, in uh, Harry's character arc is, uh, yes, this book gives him a leg up in the class and in general, uh, but of course when he and uh, Mal, uh, Malfoy start fighting in the bathroom, he nearly kills him with it, and which is when he realizes that there's something within Harry that if he, that if he lets it out, you know, this is the old, you'll turn to the dark side, <laughs> as blatantly blurted out in the, pre, in the Star Wars <laughs> prequels. I mean, look, Luke, Luke, Lucas and his shitty writing was right, <laughs> but it's just handled poorly. 
um, you know, you, you have this inside of you, and if it's not managed, if it's not cared for, it's going to blow up, and you're going to become bad, just as bad, if not worse, than Voldemort. And so um, him and Ginny go into the room of requirement and get rid of the damn thing, which, is a, which produces a moment between him and Ginny, which, which these movies have been sorely needing. Since the first time she laid on yeah. the movie, you know, and she got um, the Google side, we've needed more of that. Say, can I uh, disagree with you on that? By all means. For me, it wasn't that he thought he was turning to the dark side, for lack of better terms. Uh, the spell in that he uses on Malfoy, it says in the book, what's the spell? Sectum Sempra, I believe, and it says for enemies. Yep. Harry tries it out without even, or he uses it on Malfoy during the fight without even thinking. It says, it says for enemies, and he uses it. He does not know what it's going to do. For those who have not read the book or seen the movie, it is, for lack of better terms, a rapier spell. It basically slashes Malfoy across the chest with an invisible sword. Um, and again, th- th- I also feel this goes back to the fact that Snape is the one who finds him, and yes, Snape is the half-blood prince. He's the one who created that spell. He recognizes it for what it is. And when he sees Harry perform, and when he sees the ramifications that Harry's performed it, he's not happy. I just like to think that Harry tried, decided to go hide. Well, for the record, in the book, he hides it because he does not want to get caught with it. Uh, he puts the book in the room requirement with every intent of going back and getting it. Uh, Snape says, I want you to come to, uh, Snape, you know, realizing what has happened, says, Harry, go get all your school books and bring them down here. Harry basically grabs Ron's uh, copy of advanced potion making and hides his in the room of requirements so he doesn't get caught with it. None of that is in the movie. It's not even alluded to. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm, and then that's fine, but uh, going off just what I saw in the movie, I stand by you have a character who in the next, if, if it's not in the bathroom scene, which I'll, which I'll grant you, there isn't enough time for the camera to focus on the anguish that, that caused them. He's more running in fear at that point. But the next mm-hmm. scene, when, you know, it's sort of what, what, you, what the audience doesn't see is sort of his explanation of what happened to uh, Hermione and Ron. And when, you, when the scene opens up, they're just sort of looking at him and he is looking down and if that's not guilt, if that's not some degree of fear, I'm not entirely sure what Daniel Radcliffe was trying to portray there. Um, it, is a level, it is a level of fear that he performed that spell without practicing. Harry makes it clear that had he known what that spell was, he never would have used it, not even against Malfoy. Mm-hmm. So he, he, is, he is very racked with guilt over that. But that is something the movie really messed up. You know, am, am I the only one who, and maybe this was actually referenced somewhere and I don't remember it right offhand, but was I the only one of us three who watched it and when you kind of piece together that it was Snape's book, you kind of think back and go, well, damn, considering the way Harry's dad treated you, no wonder you wanted to learn some serious fuck-you-up spells. <laughs> <laughs> Everything Snape thinks, if Lord Voldemort hadn't got you, I would have at least knocked you down a flight of stairs. 
yeah, that's that, that's one other thing that Order of Phoenix really didn't establish as well as it should have is in the book. That's one thing it really makes pretty crystal clear is James when he was Harry's age was kind of a dick. <laughs> Yeah, it, you know, with so much time spent in these movies on a lot of details, you know, like you said, you got to kill some of your babies. I would have loved to have seen more of, of Jerk James and, you know, and Nerdy Snape. But how much time of this in the movie do you want to dedicate and what do you want to cut? I had, you know, Ra- um, Winfrey and I had the same exact conversation with another stellar Oscar-worthy contender. You may have heard of it. Michael Bay's Transformers The Age of Extinction, where I argue, look, there's something... There's only so much time in a movie that's so full of amazing plot developments and character developments. What are you going to cut as you can add more of what you're trying to add, Mr. Winfrey? Which, which is not on the network, unfortunately. you got to go to my YouTube page for that because we had technical difficulties that night. But you can hear me plead with Winfrey, what do you cut from this masterpiece, Age of Extinction, to make room for the thing that you find a deficit with? And he could not answer me. <laughs> Simple. You get back to making good Transformers video games and you put it in there. <laughs> By the way, Alexis, that is a true story. Every word of what I just said was true. Good to know. <laughs> I, there is something I want to ask you guys if you thought the same thing. Again, watch this movie for the first time in ages last night. Did anyone else think that maybe it was to reflect on the somber mood of the wizarding world and how worried everyone was? But the movie definitely seems like it got shaded down a couple of notches in lightness. Everything was so dark, gray, brown, very hard to see a lot of what was going on. Or did I just have the lousiest copy downloaded? (laughs) I watched it in Blu-ray, so... uh, um, Looks like me. Yeah, I look. There is a there. I, I mentioned this with the last with the um, with the last movie, I believe. Uh, well, you know that opens up with a, with a, with a with a gloomy sky, you know, almost surreal. There's 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 a sharp turn uh, after Goblet of Fire, where where not just the tone, but the whole movie is presented as darker. You know, just just from a visual aspect. So I don't think you're wrong, but I, but obviously it was done purposefully and artfully to sort of portray, you know, life after the return of Voldemort. The sun, you know, mm-hmm. you know this is, we have not yet gotten to morning in the Wizarding World of Harry. We are at we are you know we are currently at dusk, working towards midnight. Yar, tell Tommy Beard that the booty better be in 1080p from now on, or he be walking the plank. That was random. Oh. <laughs> All right, what else we got? This film, I felt, unfortunately, did suffer a lot from how much they had to cut. Half-Blood Prince is a great story, but very similar to Chamber of Secrets. It is a puzzle piece placement of a storyline. There, mm-hmm. so, there are so many things that they have to hammer out and get settled in before Deathly Hallows. We have so much we got to focus on, so much we got to nail down, and the pacing kind of suffers for it. And there are so many scenes that 
yeah, may not have been crucial, but really would have helped out. Uh, for example, yeah, I, I the first memory that. that I have to challenge that because I thought the plot was really tight with this. I think you had the the um, the tempting of Draco as as one of the plots. You have the uh, the bonding and subsequent manipulation of uh, Slughorn with Harry, and that you know just that entire relationship. And then you have the introduction of the Horcruxes, and you know uh, Harry and Dumbledore's wild adventure, the and the book. We, you know, so as Draco, Draco, as Draco, as Malfoy. <laughs> you're not screwing up my name you're screwing up someone else's I messed up the name good uh, as Malfoy is being <laughs> I contend still that so was Harry you know both had a carrot dangling a poison carrot dangled in front of them and yes I understand the book has an entirely different interpretation of what was going on with Harry but you know books are for burning I can only watch, I only watch the movies so what I saw was you have an evil character, quote unquote, and you have your hero, and both of them in this movie are struggling with temptation and turning into something they want nothing to do with. That is such a strong plot. I, I mean, I, for the people that you know, the gal with who wrote the list, and you know, I don't, I don't quite see where this is a placeholder. Yes, some things were introduced that you know that are not really dealt with, so that we can go into the next movie, the Horcruxes. Um, you know, and there's a bit of a disconnect with Dumbledore and Harry, you know, in that, in that third act, but it more than makes up for it with the final confrontation between the Death Eaters, uh, Malfoy and, uh, Snape and Dumbledore. Um, you know, and then you have that, that reveal as Harry goes chasing them through the woods, you know, I am the half-blood prince, you putts, and then off we go. Oh, really? <laughs> Alan Rickman said putts. In my version, yeah. I watched Blu-ray. Uh, does it? Th- does anybody else kind of pause for a moment and go, wait, what? At the fact that Voldemort has got the most powerful, evil, sadistic wizards in all of the wizarding world at his command, and who does he send to kill the one wizard who ever struck fear into him? The teenager who got his who got his milky milky-skinned ass handed to him repeatedly by the ones who got by pretty much on dumb luck for the past six years? Um, May may I alter a point to that from, again, from the books? By all means. Again, if I'm coming across as too well in the books, if if I'm coming across too on a pedestal, guys, please do not hesitate to tell me to shut up. Um, you guys are familiar with the scene where uh, Bellatrix and Narcissa Malfoy, that that's Draco's mother, go to visit Snape and talk about how it's like, Snape, you've got to convince Voldemort not to have Draco do this. It is elaborated more in the book. Lucius Malfoy is currently in Azkaban prison. He was caught with some of the other Death Eaters um, and during the uh, uh, Ministry of Magic battle from Order of Phoenix. Lucius was tasked with getting that prophecy. Guess what? Lucius failed. You even see it in Order of Phoenix. You see Jason Isaac's character, when the prophecy gets destroyed, he's got a, oh, I am so royally screwed look on his face. Voldemort's not happy with him, and Narcissa talks with me basically saying that it's abundantly clear to her. Voldemort chose Draco not because he thought he would be the most accomplished, not because he thought he'd be the best at succeeding. This is punishment. 
Dietrich sure. Draco basically well, you played say, that well, way, okay. Yeah, he basically did is like, well, guess what, Lucius, you screwed up, so I'm gonna, I, I'm sending your son. Deal with that. All right, then instead of starting the movie with Harry picking up some chick in a diner, they should have started the movie with Lucius in his cell, with a with a visit by a ghostly Voldemort saying, "You failed, you putts. You failed. You will be punished. <laughs> I will." I will take it. This was written. Everyone's Jewish in the Wizarding World of Harry, in my version. Um, <laughs> but a, a ghostly Voldemort. I, I couldn't make, I could make a joke about our current president-elect now, but I'm not going to. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> um, and he, you know, he says, "I will." T-, he's like, "As punishment for your failure, I will take your son. I will bring him with me. I will make him something you never intended for him to be. There's nothing you can do to stop it." And, you know, and have him, no, and, you know, grab the bars and boom, Harry Potter and the ass for the face of the thing, you know, and then go to the <laughs> <laughs> and then go I to I could have seen that or just even more elaborate or, or uh, going further into the scene with Narcissa and Snape saying, of course, double, or of course, the Dark Lord expects him to fail. Why else? That's a line of the book. Says, of course, he expects him to fail. Why else would he have given him this task? You know, that that well, is still, so even putting well, that in probably would have cleared things well, up. Well, still, but I'm still thinking to myself, is this really what's rolling through his mind? Is it, huh? The balance of power in all the wizarding world is at stake, and my time and my time is nearly at hand to seek vengeance on those who vanquished me. But first, I'm gonna fuck up this teenager six ways from Sunday because fuck his daddy. That's why. Now the devil's in the details. What's fun? What's fun? What's fun about being a dark lord is you can't fuck with you know individuals who you know who annoy you. Again, I don't think he expected. Sorry. <laughs> I, again, I don't think he expected Draco to succeed. I know for a fact he didn't expect Snape to step in and finish the job. I have a feeling that you know uh, Bellatrix and Fenrir Greyback, who is one of the Death Eaters in that scene, they all went back on Dumbledore's dead. Dumbledore's dead. Dumbledore's like, oh shit, really? Oh, okay, moving to the play. And I'm just and again, that's a hell of a gamble to take, though. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to risk something like that in a number of things that could possibly go wrong in the course of this whole cockamamie revenge op you've got going on. What was cockamamie about? And, he, had, he had a guy in the school pull an inside job, bring in, you know, bring in a couple of heavies from another part of the world. You know, and what what better what better sweet revenge than have one of your you know one of your precious students pull a knife on you and stab you in the back? Dude, Wilson Fisk was smarter than this. <laughs> Ow. Kilgrave <laughs> uh, was Kilgrave <laughs> planned better than this than this fucking stupid scheme. <laughs> Okay, look, as far as cockamamie plots goes, this is quite linear compared to what's-his-fucks from Civil War, whose plan still doesn't make any sense. You know what? I love Civil War. That's one of my favorite movies. But, yeah, every time someone says, well, explain how it works, my no, no. It's like watching Sharknado. The logic part of your brain for that just has to be turned into the off position. I, yeah, if you want to hear me scream and yell 
at the failure of that third act. You should listen to Damn You Hollywood's review of Civil War as I proceed to basically scream at uh, Robert Downey Jr. for being a shitty actor for that for that last scene, that last bit. <laughs> that's, a, that's a story for another day. Um, all right, if uh, I think we'll we'll agree to disagree on on Voldemort's planning skills and uh, whether or not Draco was a good choice. Uh, what else we got here, Alexis? Uh, well, we also have our new uh, teacher, uh, Horace Slughorn, played brilliantly by Jim Broadbent. I want to add that when I first re- when I first read the book, this was I read the book long before the movie was made, and when I first read about Slughorn's uh, mannerisms, his appearance, his kind of thing, I immediately thought Jim Broadbent, but I thought Jim Broadbent's portrayal from Moulin Rouge, uh, what was his name, Zidler, that, that very loud, that, oh, oh okay, well, you're very, very like that. So when I heard Broadbent was that, I was like, yes, yes, I knew it. But when I saw the poem, I was like, okay, not quite what I was going for or thinking you were going to do, but okay. You're doing more so Jack Levin, sir. I don't know what this is all about. It's actually a good way to put it. I also felt that they kind of missed a great opportunity by not including one very strong factoid about Slughorn. Uh, if this was mentioned in the movie, guys, uh, please correct me, but I don't think it was. Horace Slughorn was head of Slytherin House when he was a teacher. He was a Slytherin. And this is the first time we get in the series that not all Slytherins are evil. They're not all manipulative. They're not all the Snapes and the Malfoys and the Crabs and the Goyles. You know, Horace Slughorn is a Slytherin. He is cunning. He is manipulative. He, you know, he wants to, you know, get ahead. He wants to succeed, but he's not evil. Now is as good a time as I need to tell people. I did do, as I said, I am an, uh, I'm an elephant faithful, 100%, honestly true. I said I would go on the Pottermore website and get my house picked out. And and uh, amazingly, I totally thought I was going to go. I was all Hufflepuff. Uh, I am Gryffindor. One of us. One of us. One of us. Gobble, <laughs> Sean and I are both uh, Gryffindors as well. Did you do the Patronus uh, test? Yeah. What'd you get? What'd you get? No, I no. We only talked about the house. Okay, your next test. Go get your damn Patronus. Oh, you you dippy muggle. <laughs> all about being a muggle god damn it um, I ain't all about your magic I'll build me a suit of armor and start shooting rays at you alright um, well done you too <laughs> I don't even know I don't even know why I said that I'm a bigger fan of Hulk than I am Iron Man Anywho. don't you make me bust out the wrong song boy plugs no, um <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, just just to, so we're not just talk, talking at the wall here. Um, I'll address the portrayal of the character. I have nothing to go on. I just, you know, I none of that comes comes through in his performance. By the way, uh, you get the sense that he's just sort of a a, a um, befuddled old man with a horrible secret. Yeah, you know, if I, if someone were to say, could you could you could you come up with a theme for this movie in one word? It's guilt. You know, he's carrying around an enormous amount of guilt mm-hmm. because you know, he's clearly blaming himself for the rise of uh, Voldemort, having you know stupidly revealed the uh, the the secret of the Horcruxes. Um, 
So there's a lot of that going on. But, yeah, he, he definitely comes across as more of a broken man, you know, maybe trying to prop himself back up again and, you know, and hope to God nobody finds out his terrible secret. Uh, but no, I do not get any of what else of what you just said. That, and I don't know if that was a note from from the producers, uh, or or from the executives at Warner Brothers, or it was just a different take by the screenwriter. But I also I have to wonder if you're putting that out there, how did Rowling let that? You know, how how do you take a character written the way you just said and say, hey, how about we do none of that, and and let's make him Jack Lemmon instead. That always did surprise me a little bit. Again, I adore Jim Bronson. He's an amazingly good actor. But there was so much of it that I was really looking forward to that he did not convey. Again, he, one of one of Slughorn's biggest attributes is that he looks for the talented students and he gets in good with them. You, you recognize this in the scene where he's showing the pictures to Harry. He goes, oh, yeah, there's uh, the head of the uh, that Quidditch team, I get free tickets whenever I want. And this guy uh, works for the profit. He always takes my out. If, if Harry mentioned something in the book, like he pictured a spider spinning its web and connecting one thread to another. And that is very much so, much so what Slughorn is, and that's why he has a slug club. He wants to find the, uh, the students who will either have great connections already or are going to turn into a great connection. He, he looks at how it could better himself. Well, let me Again, a very Slytherin uh, uh, trick. You need, you, you need an actor then that's going to be able to, to seduce the audience and, and the other actors. You know, you need somebody, you know, you're talking about a spider spinning this web. Um, you need somebody with, you know, uh, more charisma. You know, you want somebody, I mean, even if you're going to use like an old man, um, I, uh, I don't know, maybe like a Sean Connery or, you know, or uh, I'm trying to think of some real elder gentleman. I, know, well, or, I, I don't know. Harry Potter might have confused Connery. <laughs> oh, God. And let me just say, how the fuck do you make Zardoz and then say you couldn't understand the plot of Lord of the Rings? Sean... I love you, but the fuck, bro? Again, I think if Brogdon had played the role closer to the way he portrayed Diddler in Moulin Rouge, if, if, you know, again, very loud, very boisterous, very, I will be your friend, come and talk to me. You know, we can do all, you know, it's like, you can trust me. I, I, that's exactly how I pictured Slughorn when I read the book the very first time. You know, I don't you know, know you Actually, you know who you almost make him sound like when you portray him that way? Not so much like Harry Zidler, but um, you make him sound more like Gilderoy Lockhart in Chamber of Secrets. Well, there actually are some parallels to the characters. The main difference being that Slughorn is not full of bullshit. (laughs) He's not a liar. (laughs) I still think maybe if they were going for that sort of character characterization, they should have gone for Nicolas Cage. Oh God! Oh God! It's gonna take a lot of alcohol to get that image out of my head now. Thank you. You're well. Welcome to the long road to ruin. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think he clicked uh, all the boxes, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, getting on to it, though, there were a lot of scenes I thought really did well. I did like the handling of Ron's first relationship with Lavender Brown, who in the books, yes, she is just that insipid and annoying. <laughs> so that was handled perfectly. She's, she's a great character. It's perfect. Wish they'd been more Yeah, I just, I just love that scene where she breathes on the glass and then writes, and she just looks like so passionate. I'm like, oh, God, honey, no. <laughs> but again, that's exa- that. That is just perfect. I just love Ron's. Like, uh huh, yeah, that's right. Go away now. <laughs> Not a whole lot of lavender shipping going on here. Because lavender has had two things in the book. She adores Professor Trelawney, and she wanted to hook up with Ron. That's about it. Yeah. That's all you need. Yeah, but lavender. Hello? Okay, why do we all get so quiet all of a sudden? <laughs> <laughs> you were saying? Oh, sorry, I thought somebody interrupted something. I thought I guess we were all waiting for someone to continue. Um, I, I've been talking ad nauseum here. Please, someone else bring something else up about Half-Blood Prince. <laughs> I feel like I'm dominating this part of the book or well, the movie or the whatever. I don't have a lot more to add to it. So, yes, you are, you are, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Fine. Sean, you've read the book. Wait, have you read Half-Blood Prince finally? Yes, I finally read Half-Blood Prince. You want to tell him the story on why you waited so long to read the book? There's not really much of a story to it. Uh, I mean, it's it's a matter of I read the first four. Um, I borrowed Order of Phoenix from you and read it in like a day or two. Um, I finally got around to Half Blood. Got around to Half Blood Prince. Oh wait, 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 wait! Are you wanting me to tell the story about about John spoiling the ending for me? Yeah, that's I, I, that, You oh. always told me that was the reason you never got around to reading Half Blood Prince for the longest oh, time because the ending oh, was spoiled okay. for you. Okay, okay. It took a second for me to put to put four plus four together and get Jello. Um, um, okay, for those of you who don't know and who were not privy to this in the long-ago old-timey times of early YouTube, one of the more famous earlier viral videos of the era uh, was actually one of the more heinous troll jobs to ever be executed. Um, it amounts to a couple people for the sake of being dipshits doing dipshit things uh, drove past the midnight release of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Not the movie, the book. And prior to this, advanced copies had, mani- had managed to leak. As a result, someone leaked the ending. So, these two little vaginal belches decided to just cruise right past the bookstore and scream out the window, Thanks, Dumbledore! And to, to, the reaction, to the reaction of just anguished yells from everybody standing in line. Okay, I had not seen this by this point. 
I did not know about this. I'm hanging out. I'm in college, and I'm visiting a couple of friends of mine who are in another college in another town. And we're hanging out, and there's this friend of ours from high school who was also going to the same school. And he was just the most stereotypical tool of a hipster you ever met in your life. And he thought it was hilarious to just go on one of the computers and just blare this on repeat in the computer lab. While, we were, while I was hanging out with my friends. And of course, I hadn't read the book yet. I had every intention of it, but I hadn't gotten around to it. They had only been out for about a week or two by this point. And I said, thanks, John. I was looking forward to reading it. He didn't care because he didn't like the book. He didn't like the series. He thought it was stupid, so fuck what anybody else thinks. He kept doing it. I got tired of it. For those of you who are MMA fans are, and are familiar with um, a, a Brazilian cat by the name of Rafael Belsanos, um, throw some of the most wicked leg kicks you've ever, you've ever seen slash heard in your life. I reared back and I let loose with one right to the outside of his fucking knee. To get him to just knock it the hell off, I was so pissed at it. Um, yeah, which which of course he did because because you know while he hopped around like he was on an invisible hobby horse, somebody went over to the computer and turned fucking YouTube off. But yeah, after that, it kind of dampened my enthusiasm to read the book. So I basically hadn't read it until after the movie came out. So. Yeah, um, it's it's somewhat infamous for those of us who kind of came of age around that time and were aware of the franchise as being one of the most just blatantly assholeish things. Anybody at that point in the annals of the internet had decided to do. But now it's it's so well known and it's gone by so far that I, I'm well past the statute of limitations on spoilers and plus we just fucking talked about it. So, <laughs> all right. Maybe we should uh, put up a warning for next time. It's like to, welcome to Log Road to Ruin. There are spoilers. Oh, oh bullshit! Everybody who listens to our show knows by now that we that we talk about the plot in depth. We. And I think throughout the first year or two we did the show, we always prefaced it with, we're going to be talking about the series in depth, going to be spoilers. Might If you want to watch, the, if you actually have interest in watching this, you might want to stop here and come back. We haven't done that I, in a while, though. I, I subscribe to the notion that the movie is more than a year old and has been on video for quite some time. If you haven't seen it, and, and are... You That's know, your and fault. Then, yeah, then don't yeah. listen to the podcast. I don't know what to tell you. Word. Um, since we have mystery time left here, which could be one minute, could be 30 minutes, <laughs> who knows? Um, Blog Talk Radio, full of surprises. I'm going to ask Alexa that you think about... Um, ah, you did it! Did I? Drink. It's Alexis. Did I? Uh, whatever. George. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> what, you, you were trying to say something and Sean was blurting out something at... I don't know what. Mark, would you please be kind enough to repeat that? <laughs> if you could uh, bring up your very you last. Alexa. My very last thoughts on Half Blood Prince. 
Um, anything left unsaid? Uh, the one thing you can't leave the show without saying. Now is the time. Again, oh, so I've already said everything I need to say about Order Phoenix. Past Blood Prince, I did enjoy, but I really self-suffered the most because of how much was cut from the book. Again, there was a lot of detail, a lot of backstory. We saw in the book, she saw more memories of Voldemort's, you know, how he came to where he came, how, why he feared death, why he was tempted to make the Horcruxes, and possibly my favorite revelation that there's a very good reason why there is only been, why every defense against the dark arts teacher has only lasted one year. Not really. So, what's the get? Yeah, what's the get? Turns, what's the gimmick? It turns out Vol, uh, Tom Riddle, I should say, because he was not going to the name of Voldemort, actually wanted to teach at Hogwarts. He wanted to teach defense against the dark arts. First, he applied twice. Once right after graduation, uh, the um, and then the headmaster at the time said, uh, way too young, no chance. He came back later when Dumbledore was uh, doing it, and Dumbledore said, you don't really want to teach. You're just looking to recruit more people to follow you. I'm not a complete idiot, no. To which then, after Dumbledore tells us, shows his story with Harry, says, well, ever since then, no defense against the dark art teacher has lasted more than a year. So it's Looked at that, or that Voldemort cursed the position. It's like if he hmm. couldn't have it, no one was going to last there. And I thought that was such a great revelation because it's always been a gag in the books. Hell, even the reason why uh, Dolores Umbridge was appointed in the fifth book was they established, like, yeah, she's appointed because no one else would take the job. They think it's cursed. I mean, look at the track record. <laughs> Pretty brilliant. In my, head, in my head canon. Voldemort was also turned down to fill in as a drummer for Spinal Tap. <laughs> <laughs> he also, I believe, ran uh, ran as a Republican in the uh, the last election, but lost in the primary. <laughs> God, not while I'm drinking, you twat waffle. <laughs> <laughs> that was not a political joke, by the way. I could have easily have said that. Party, but four people ran as Democrats in this election cycle, not 72, as in the Republican Party. So, that's it. God. Um, Sean, are you okay? <laughs> you blood gushing hemorrhoid, you. Look, I ain't no peeper. I don't know what you're doing over there. I don't know how you're drinking. <laughs> no, fair to Sean, I didn't know either, but damn, yeah, that's hilarious. Um, anywho uh, I think that's a great place to say we're done here Um, (laughs) blood gushing hemorrhoids a good place to end the show (laughs) yes I couldn't think of a better place Um, so we are taking a week off Uh, however we will be reviewing on damn you Hollywood uh, fantastic beast and where to find them uh, we'll also, next week, we will be, uh, a Metal Hammer of Doom, we'll be uh, reviewing the first disc from uh, Metallica's Hardwired to Self-Destruct. Uh, Thanksgiving, I'm not doing any shows. <laughs> but <laughs> who knows what evil love in the men. Someone will I'm, do I'm something. I'm going hiking. <laughs> um, so that's all for uh, for next week. We've got Fent- 
Damn You Hollywood and Metal Hammer of Doom the following week. Damn You Hollywood, Moana, uh, Metal Hammer of Doom, Hard Web, Self-Destruct Part 2. And then on December 1st, uh, that Thursday, we'll be concluding our look at the Harry Potter series, uh, Deathly Hollows 1 and 2. And this time, I won't be sorely disappointed when Harry Potter doesn't turn into magic using Aragorn. I get it now. I get it. I'm good. <laughs> I'll get through this. <laughs> Uh, so with that said, Alexis, uh, why don't you uh, remind people of uh, what you do and where they can find you and what else do you ever want to know about yourself? All right. Once again, I run Honeysuckle Rose Creations, intersection of geek and chic, where we sell amazing, one-of-a-kind handmade jewelry, mostly upcycled from old game pieces like Scrabble tiles, dice, dominoes, and the like. We have recently unveiled our newest Harry Potter three pieces. We have our We have our Patronus charm bracelet which I should add, is customizable. Send us a message. If you got a certain Patronus that you want included on the bracelet, if you took the Pottermore quiz, hint, hint, take it. If you took the Pottermore quiz and you want to see your Patronus on that bracelet, you let us know. We will make it for you. We will get it there. Perfect gifts for the holiday season. HoneysuckleRoseCreation.com. You can find us on Etsy, Handmade at Amazon, and Store Envy. Thank you very much for being on the show again. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Excellent, uh, excellent material you brought to the show as always. Um, Thank you. Sad, I'm sad when we're done here, and uh, we won't have you on the show again for a while until we come up with something else that you're passionate about. You've, you've been very, you've been fun to have on here. Um, Sean, do your thing. Are we not having her on for Deathly Hollows? I said when it's over, when we're when we're all done. Oh, oh, okay. I missed I missed that part. I'm sorry. Um, thank you, everybody, who listened live tonight, who downloaded it and listened to the rest later. Uh, your support means the world to us. You are the reason why we do what we do. That being said, in the meantime, if for one reason or another you're a glutton for punishment and you just can't get enough of me, uh, this coming Sunday, mosey on over to fpgnews.com at... Uh, I believe, I'm trying to remember the Survivor Series start time, I believe 6 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Make your way over there because I will, for the first time, be doing live streaming results all night. For those of you who cannot catch this ungodly four-hour-plus endurance trial of a WWE Network special. Um, In the meantime, you can tweet your love, hate, various and sundry respects respectful disagreements to me at Comer Codex on Twitter. Um, I'm not going to suggest you hit me up on Facebook because, quite frankly, I've, I've kind of had it with the general fuckery of humanity at this point. So I am on Facebook strictly so that I can help run the Honeysuckle Rose Creations Facebook page uh, where you can interact with us, check out our products, offer your suggestions, offer your feedback, Offer your feedback. We love to hear from you. And trust me, I am much more friendly on there than I am here on this podcast. I guarantee you that. Yeah, uh, for a reason. Aw, thank you. It's, and I'm pleased to have this job, and I love working for you. Um, yeah. And that being so, 
That being said, oh, and you can also find me over on Twitter, on Twitter at HRS Creations. Uh, I also run that account uh, where daily we feature at least one or two items from our collection, complete with some absolutely outstanding specials that Alexis and I are cooking up for Black Friday and Cyber Monday coming up for the next couple of weeks, running right up through Christmas, and in some cases with some features, even beyond that. Uh, but you'll have to tune into our social media to find out just exactly what they are, or just keep checking back daily at our Etsy, Handmade at Amazon, and Store Envy shops. In the meantime, thank you again, everybody. Thank you, Alexis, for joining me up, for joining me on the show. Thank you, Mark, as always, for being such a superb co-host. This is Sean, you're not, reminding you that $20 can buy many peanuts, Lisa still needs braces, and never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. All right, tomorrow night on the network, uh, Metal Hammer of Doom, our special Thanksgiving show. This year's turkey album is Anthrax Stomp 442, a sore, just a terrible departure from a strong debut for uh, John Bush who was the singer taking over for Dilly Belladonna, uh, The Sound of White Noise, one of the greatest albums I've ever heard in the history of my life. Sound of White Noise was amazing. You would have thought Stop 442 would just continue the goodness of John Bush of Manowar and Anthrax, and it wasn't. It was, it was not good. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll review it tomorrow. We'll see what Jesse and Cooper think of it all low these many years later. Um, and then, as I said, uh, in the next two weeks after that, Metallica parts one and two is hardwired to self-destruct. Uh, also, I just want to remind people, we're doing a special Long Road to Ruin in December. Uh, it'll be just myself and Gavin Napier of, I don't think he does any podcasts anymore, so the hell with it. Uh, we'll be looking at three Paul Thomas Anderson movies because I've done Lost the Bet, and that's what he told me I had to do. But uh, Long Road to Ruin, we'll, we'll be doing our last show uh, on Tuesday, December 13th. It'll be the Cornetto's Three Flavors Trilogy. Uh, so that's that for now. Uh, thank you for everyone for listening. Again, thank you, Alexis and Sean. Uh, Till uh, we meet again, be well, be safe, and behave.